You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes, it's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. They want $5,000. Guess you're really up shit creek. Are you the police? No, ma'am. We're musicians. Don't you guys ever wear blue jeans or jumpsuits like like Wayne Cochran or C.C. Ryder? We're on a mission from God. Good to see you, sweetheart. You contemptible pig. How much for the women? I catch that sucker. Excuse me. See two guys coming here, black suits, black hats. Sit them down there. Thank you. Oh, please don't kill us. You know I love you, baby. Let's go. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Susan Tekla Kruglinska. I went to the mall, I got a haircut and some disco pants, and I'm ready to go. Also back in the booth is Mr. Brad Jones. I am recording this in a room right now that's actually just as like tight and cluttered as their apartment in this movie. <laughs> Musical Month continues with a look at John Landis's 1980 film, The Blues Brothers. It's the story of Jake and Elwood Blues, two musicians who need to get $5,000 in order to pay back taxes on the orphanage where they grew up learning to be white blues singers. Of course, we are going to be spoiling this film, so be warned. If you haven't seen this 41-year-old film, please turn off the podcast and come back after you have. We will still be here. So, Susan, when was the first time you saw the Blues Brothers, either the movie or the act, and what did you think? They came out on Saturday Night Live when I was in elementary school, and I was raised Catholic and was forbidden to watch it. But somehow, of course, they trickled into my consciousness anyway, just like Mr. Bill. And, you know, somehow, I don't know, even without the internet, I still knew who Mr. Bill was. King Tut, of course. But so, and my brother owned the 45 of Soul Man, so we were already crazy about them before the movie came out. 
But I was just in like sixth grade when the movie came out. Nobody apparently wanted to drive me to the theater. So I know I didn't see it in the theater because I would have remembered that. Um, so I'm sure the first time I saw it was the worst possible way, which was on TV with commercials edited for television. And then I'm certain the first time I saw it on the screen would have been college because I caught up on a lot of stuff, you know, seeing it really nice on the big screen in college. The first time I saw it was the, obviously the worst possible way, but um, have always thought it was a almost, if not perfect, Near perfect or perfect film. And Brian, how about you? Complete agreement. Like I, the first way that I saw it was pretty much that exact same way. Belushi was God in our house and like, and like still is. And so when I grew up watching that era of Saturday Night Live in the eighties, it was when Nick at Night would do the best of Saturday night, uh, at night. And then when I saw this movie, mid late eighties, probably. And again, it was a network television airing, and what I remember the most was the promo that they had before the movie, and it shows the part in the movie where he's there with Carrie Fisher at the end, and he takes his sunglasses off. And I remember, <laughs> I do, I remember this. I remember being a little kid and thinking in my head, going like, "Oh man, they spoiled that he eventually takes his sunglasses off." <laughs> <laughs> And watched it uh, with my dad, seen it hundreds of times since then. And I remember being a little kid seeing it too. And the cameo being the age I was at the time, the cameo geeking out the most that I did when I first saw it was the Paul Rubens cameo. I am the old man of the group, apparently, because I got to see this theatrically when I was eight years old. <laughs> Nice. I, no, I think we're the same age or I'm even a l slightly older. I just was not allowed. And, you know, nobody would drive me. Yeah, but I think I was a little older because I was in sixth grade. So you would have been – so you were eight, so you must have been fourth or something like that. That's too much math for me to, to subtract kindergarten. This was that great age. I mean, I've, I talked on the Blade Runner episode that, you know, my mom took me to see that. This was my neighbors down the street took me to see the Blues Brothers. I don't know if my folks would have approved had they known that they were taking me to see it. Because to your guys' point, this movie was riddled with profanity. Not so much sex and violence, but my goodness, the profanity. And then, yeah, the, the TV cut of this, I have been looking high and low for the TV version of it because this was the TV cut for me. Just all of those hilarious ways that they tried to get around the swearing, especially the scene with the penguin at the beginning. Why is she beating them for saying, you're up the creek? Five grand, no problem. We'll have it for you in the morning. Let's do it, Ellen. No, no. I will not take your filthy stolen money. Well, then, I guess you're really up the creek. Yeah. I beg your pardon. What did you say? I offered to help. Mm -hmm. You refused to take our money. Mm -hmm. Then I said, I guess you're really up the creek. Ow! Come on, Jake. Take it easy, man. Oh, Ow, my arm. Ow! I went to Chicago when I was in 12th grade, went around taking pictures of like the Picasso and those faces that you see on the Richard J. Daly building and all that. I was just, just such a nerd about the Blues Brothers. And I don't know why it's taken me over 10 years now to talk about this film, but it's one of those like mountains for me because I just, this was something that I watched every time it was on cable 
copied it uh, from VCR to VCR. I think I taped it off of HBO even before we had two VCRs, maybe even on TV. I don't know how many people remember that. Just watch the hell out of this. And it has become such a part of me that, you know, it would make its way into other forms of play. Like, not only was I playing Star Wars, but then somehow the Star Wars characters became like Jake and Elwood Blues. Well, it's just heartbreaking to have not seen those musical numbers for the first time on the big screen. Obviously, it is just heartbreaking. You know, with my crap TV that I grew up with, with the, you know, little tiny speaker in the corner, you know, uh, with the probably click, click, click change kind of dial. I mean, we were, we did not splurge on electronics in my household. So it's really heartbreaking to, to, to think that I, I never, I did not get to see that, you know, incredible music stuff with full musical volume and, you know, fully spread out on the screen. We weren't a religious household or anything like that. So watching this at such a young age, like with my, with my parents was normal. Like I didn't have to sneak around. And if I did see something like an R rated comedy or an action movie or something like that, and I wasn't with my parents, I didn't really have to sneak. Like they, they didn't care. We were usually watching stuff like that on our own too. So this being F bombs quite a bit in this movie was honestly pretty normal in our household. (laughs) Not even, but not in like an angry way or anything like that. That's just how we talked. And that's just how we still talked. And the way that this movie is, with its vulgarity and everything is so beautifully, perfectly Midwest. Like I'm not, I'm not from Chicago, but I'm from Illinois, uh, central Illinois. And the way that they interject so many of them, like f- especially God damn it, especially that in sentences that don't necessarily need it, but it's there. Like when they get in the car, when the band gets in the car and one of the band members just goes like, Hey, move over. God damn it. Like that, adding that is so like I grew up with vulgarity being used in that way. And so it hits wonderfully close to home when I see that even that detail is so perfect in this film. Yeah, it doesn't feel gratuitous. I mean, it it just fits their personalities so much that it just somehow doesn't feel gratuitous at all. Exactly. No, 100%. It's not usually used in anger a lot of times other than like maybe uh charles napier when he's just like don't you say a fucking word and it's like okay there's a lot of force behind that one even that sentence too i could see my grandpa saying that not even out of anger just because like well i think he just wants to take a nap right now i was thankful for this episode because now i got to look into a little bit more of the history of the blues brothers like i knew that they were part of saturday night live but i didn't know exactly how much a part of it and i never realized until looking at stuff that briefcase full of blues was actually out way before the movie came out and i didn't know that that was such a hit that it basically helped propel them into this movie even more than their snl appearances yeah, that I remember because we had this, you know, we had, my brother loved, I mean, he, I remember him buying the 45 of both King Tut and Soul Man. And it was, it's such a great song. And we would, you know, so we were playing that in my house all the time. So I do remember that being out before then and already. And I remember, you know, certainly somehow I saw the Saturday Night Live performance of Soul Man, which I think is one of the wittiest visual musical bits you could ever see, which is, you know, them kind of standing there, chewing gum, being totally deadpan. And then as soon as the groove kicks in that dancing that they both do at the exact same time, it is so brilliant. My heart beats faster every time I see them do that. So, you know, that was just so 
witty by itself. I mean, I wasn't even into like a lot of the other musical numbers from Saturday Night Live, but that just killed me every time. And so I was prepped for this. And, you know, it really does break my heart that I didn't get to see it. That whole shtick that they had, I absolutely loved how Elwood would come out with the briefcase and then John would come like spinning the, the key and then unlock the briefcase and they would take out the harmonica and then Elwood like having to hold it. Like this is what, you know, it gives us the power almost. It was like a talisman for these two guys. And the cartwheel and the cartwheel. <laughs> it's like that like puts in that magical element because you do not expect. John Belushi to be able to do that. Like he, and he does it like a cat. Like, it, like there's no effort whatsoever. It's like, it's, it's like he, you know, the hand of God is just flipping him. And uh, obviously he'd been doing cartwheels his whole life, but you know, it kind of adds to that magical element to what they were doing. It almost feels like it's not possible. Growing up around here and being at a lot of different outdoor events, it was a very familiar sight in these parts as well, which I would see. More so than I would their appearances on Saturday Night Live. Any, any time there was ever like an outdoor 4th of July or summer event or a holiday event or something like that, whether it's in or around Chicago or in Springfield, Illinois, there will definitely be a couple of Blues Brothers there. <laughs> like around here, way, way more than you would see someone being Elvis. My brother-in-law, he and his buddy, they used to dress up like the Blues Brothers. My brother-in-law is like probably six foot four, and he's like a beanpole even now in his like, I don't know, 60s or whatever. And he and his buddy would dress up like the Blues Brothers, and they would crash weddings. And they never got kicked out. People would just be like, oh my god, it's the Blues Brothers, and just welcome them in with open arms. Oh, yeah. Why would you not want them there? I don't know why you wouldn't want them there. It'd be weird if they weren't there. And I can't really think of a better film you know, 41 years later, looking at the Blues Brothers, these guys who are going against the Nazis, rednecks, the cops. I mean, this is like 2020 in a nutshell, right? Yeah, it, it was forward, obviously, because it just honored so much black music, but in a way that was totally integrated. You know, I mean, The Wiz had come out very recently before that. You know, there were a lot of like, there were a few black musicals that kind of came out before that around then was like Sparkle and... Thank God it's Friday. You know, those were around that time. And those were, you know, incredible. But it is kind of very heartening to see this incredibly beautifully integrated film where, you know, it was just so much because, you know, the Blues Brothers were just so spectacularly big already. I mean, it was a little bit cheating that they had like the biggest selling blues album of all time when, you know, obviously they were not nearly as talented as every single blues singer that came before them. Uh, so in a way, they did owe it to this music community to do this in, in some way. And they did it, you know, spectacularly. It's a giant love letter to it. You can tell that this, that the writers have been listening to this for decades. And it's a giant film that definitely honors that. And there's, and, and, and growing up with the movie, a lot of this music, th this was the kind of music that my dad would have on too, but there was a lot of it that was still like introduced to me from this film and seeing it at such a young age to the point to where even a lot of the hits that still get a lot of radio play today, like Aretha Franklin's Think, usually when it comes onto the ra on the radio, when I hear it, I still immediately think back to the Blues Brothers, like most songs in this movie. <laughs> I always have to think of those uh, three women at the counter and their choreography, and especially when Jake and Elwood join them, and they're almost dancing better than the three women are. <laughs> <And> just <laughs> They specifically hired people who were not professional dancers, 
because they wanted it to look like that. One of those women is Aretha's sister. I think it's the male woman, but I'm not absolutely sure. None of them look exactly like her, but one of them is her sister. The choreographer, Carlton Johnson, amazing, like simple choreography, but brilliant, just brilliant. And the Blues Brothers apparently kept in it in their act like so much of what he did. It's uh, wonderfully witty, you know, along with being very wonderfully, you know, honoring the retro, you know, the, the, the look of Sam and Dave and all that stuff. They purposefully hired amateur-ish, obviously, you know, people who had some chops, but not top-notch professionals because they wanted it to look like that, which I think fits the, music, the movie beautifully because also the acting is like that, you know, because you have all these real musicians who were not actors acting. And so it's a, the whole movie is an interesting mix of amateur actors, amateur dancers, but all totally pulling it off. Um, it's just something about the vibe of the movie that everything just fits somehow. It works perfectly. I was thinking that when I was watching it again, going like, you can tell who's an actor and who's not. But it did make you appreciate too, when yeah, there would be the ones where it's like, well, it, yeah, acting's certainly not their day job, but th there is a charm about it. If the shit fits, where? But also, when one of them was pretty good, like, uh, Mr. Fabulous, I honestly thought did not give a bad performance in Shea Paul. I see why he's got this kind of standout scene here, because his, his acting is pretty good in this, and how he's reacting to the gross stuff that they're doing in Shea Paul. Aretha Franklin nails it. I think she's she's amazing. Like she, she, you cannot tell she's acting. She's just such a natural. She's great. Her comic comedic timing in that scene and the one liners from again the use of "God damn it" in the sense go ahead, damn it. Like <laughs> the comedic timing there is really good. Yeah, that was the first time I ever heard the term Hasidic was the two Hasidic diamond merchants. And I, for years, I had no idea what that meant. And it took me probably until I was in my 20s to be like, oh, okay, because there were just no Jewish people around for me to know what Hasidic <laughs> meant. For me, it was because I'm sure when I saw it as a kid, I didn't know what that meant either. But so much of it is in the delivery because, yeah, I guarantee you being however young I was when I first saw this movie, I didn't know what that soiled condom was. Right. right. But but <laughs> but it's just it's the delivery that I know when I was a kid, I would have laughed at that. Right. You just know it. You just know it's funny. You can see why he's been in so many things since then. And just he's he's got such presence just for such a small thankless role and i love everything that he says one timex digital watch broken one unused prophylactic one soiled and that's one of the things about this movie is it's just so freaking quotable and there's just so many great lines and the delivery especially when it comes from Aykroyd and belushi is just perfect perfect stuff that might have something to do with that Dan Aykroyd overwrote the whole thing, like famously turned in well over 300 pages. And it was so thick. They put a fake phone book cover over it. So they, these, the original script for the Blues Brothers looked like a phone book, uh, cause he had just written and written and written and written, had no idea how to edit himself. But I think, you know, you have something like that. And then John Landis chipped it down like a Michelangelo chipping away at stone, you know, and, and you, you know, you just have so much material to work with. So I have a feeling that had something to do with it. That's what I love about his writing, too, is it doesn't matter what he's writing. He writes you an epic. He writes you a novel <laughs> from uh, how long this was and, and Ghostbusters as well. Like so so many of his scripts just being this these kind of world building like scripts that he turns in. There's the musical 
numbers themselves, but then there's musicality that comes in in other places where you don't necessarily expect that. Like one of my favorite moments is when they're listening to Soothe Me by Sam and Dave, and they have that little exchange about rollers, you know, the, the cops coming up behind them, and how that dialogue matches perfectly with the horns and the song itself. Or like when um, Trooper Mount says, I'm going to catch that sucker. It's the last thing I ever do. And then how the do comes down. There's that first beat of the Peter Gunn theme. And it's just like, that's so nice. You know, it's just like these parts are musical, even though nobody's getting up and singing and dancing. It's brilliantly written and acted in a way that, and I know in the extended version and in the script that a lot of it is that that there are certain things that are explained, but their performances are so subtle and nonchalant at how they're reacting to to everything that you accept a lot of the more fantastical things about it with the stuff that the car is doing and that they just kind of have – certain items conveniently at the right time, like the glue and things like that. You just, it's, it's written and performed so well that you accept that. Like that's realistic that he's got this item on him just randomly in this, in this particular moment. And with the dialogue is great as well, but also in their, in their facial reactions and their body language and through it, it, it's amazing too. And that's, it's all through sunglasses that, Belushi and both of them, but especially Belushi can be so good at just giving a look, even with sunglasses on and a nudge and a turn of the head when they're in the restaurant and he keeps looking over his shoulder at the snooty family next to him. When he reacts to John Candy waving at him in the performance, yeah, from the dialogue, even right down to just their reactions, it's just great, subtle performances. I mean, there's so much amazing camera work and amazing editing, because that's really like the editing. I mean, and it's interesting that so the, both the cinematographer and the editor really didn't have huge careers, but they both came from Kentucky Fried Movie. So Landis knew them from the, the get-go. And again, they didn't really go on to anything huge. Um, the cinematographer did Gods and Monsters. I think that was the only other big thing. And then Baby Geniuses and a few other <laughs> things not worth mentioning. It is beautifully shot. I mean, the opening with those those almost Kubrickian wide shots in the prison yard and when he's standing in that doorway about to leave the prison, they're just gorgeous shots. And the way the light is in, and, and, and just the, the width of it and, and the s- symmetry of it. And then the edits during the music numbers. And I just think it's very innovative photography and editing. And it's way beyond it seems what he had. And so I assume that was Landis, really. I think Landis, you know, really knew what he was doing. Brad, you mentioned the extended cut. And I have to say, the first time I saw the extended cut, I just hated it because I was so used to where everything is. You know, I we all said we grew up watching this movie. And when you watch something over and over and over again, we kind of had this th- discussion on uh, the Evita podcast uh, last week where it's just like you hear Patti LuPone singing something, then you hear Madonna sing something different, and you're like, oh, wait, that doesn't hit me the right way. In this, you know, you're watching it, and then all of a sudden, like Frank Oz says, 
black boots and you're like, wait a second, that's not part of this movie. Or the guards are trying to wake up Jake and it's like, no, no, that's not part of this movie. And just all of those things just rub me the wrong way. And I think I'm a little bit better. I rewatched it again yesterday and I'm like, okay, I can kind of see some of this. But I have to say that speaking of editing, none of that stuff that was cut out to me really adds anything to the film. Like, yeah, that's great. You get to see Dan Aykroyd or Elwood quit his job and say that he's going to become a priest. And that's where you understand that he got the glue and stuff. But to your point, Susan, the whole idea of like this magical realism of the film, I don't need to know where they get these things. I don't need explanations for stuff. So it's just like, it was a little George Lucasy to me where it's just like, okay, just keep the explanations out of it. All I have to know is they're on a mission from God it seems like God has been looking down on them from those opening God's eye point of view scenes of you know the Chicago Juliet area. I just need to know that they're under God's protection and then their car can fly. I don't need to know anything else. I don't give a shit where the stuff I love comes from. I just love the stuff I love. I felt the same way. I remember when I watched the extended version when it first came out, when it had that VHS, and we all watched it. And I remember feeling, I mean, I remember not liking it, but also kind of feeling like I usually do when I watch something like that, which is like, yeah, I definitely don't prefer this, but I always watch that stuff more as a curiosity. You know what I mean? Like, like I'm, I'm watching this kind of at a, as a curiosity, just to sort of see what was edited, what was, what was taken out and then edited back in. And I remember when it was the scene where where Elwood quit his job because he, he doesn't have his sunglasses on. And I remember we were sitting there watching it. I think we were in high school, maybe when the extended version came out and all of us sitting there just going, this is weird. And now I think the most annoying thing coming from it is even to this day, if I'm popping it up on television or on voodoo or something like that, I have to always go like, okay, I got to make sure I got the theatrical version. Cause when you see it streaming, you always see both. Like even over on voodoo, it's like, Oh, extended or theatrical. So it's like, all right, I got to 100% make sure that I've got the theatrical version. Yeah, I agree. There's absolutely not a single scene I can think of, of, of that added anything. There were excellent edit choices. I am always all for shorter movies and more editing because I think, you know, it, that's a lost art and and it was beautiful. You know, this is just a, a great tight movie. And, and yeah, there's um the showing of the the car, the bluesmobile going into that garage where it's electrified and it's supposed to kind of explain why the bluesmobile is magical, right? It's where they park it at night. And it, it just, um, it's like, I guess Dan Aykroyd really wanted to show that he felt it was necessary. But yeah, absolutely. It, when you see it, I had read about that scene before I saw it. And I just, it, you know, it was boring. I mean, there was nothing, it, you didn't even really understand why it was there. Uh, so Landis did a good job of putting his foot down. And when you see an explanation like that, it's sort of like, okay, now you're putting me in a position where I have to say this doesn't make sense. And what he cut out were just like weird little, just little moments most of the time. Uh, when they're at Bob's Country Bunker, there's a little extra snippet where Bob hands the list of songs that they're supposed to play to Tom Bones Malone. And it's just like, here you go. And it's like, what's this? Oh, this is the songs you're going to play. And then cut to them with the list on stage. Oh, these are just suggestions. I didn't need. Bob actually handing the list to anybody. I just needed them with the list. So it was all like extraneous stuff. 
I love Bob. I love Bob and his wife. They're, and it's, you know, the whole thing's so beautifully cast. Like, those, they're such minor characters. And I don't think even either one of those actors, you know, did much else. But they're just absolute perfection. Uh, what kind of music do you usually have here? Oh, we got both kinds. We got country and western. So many minor characters in it, too, is like they, they just stand out. A person can be in it for five seconds and you still quote them. Like, you'll be like... Oh man, I want to like, like you're sort of picturing their story in your head, like right down to the guy who wanted his cheese whiz at the hotel. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that was um, the makeup artist. Oh, was it really? Yeah, the cheese whiz guy was the makeup artist, Lane Britton, Shotgun Britton. And he's this old timey makeup artist who had, you know, gone all the way back to Citizen Kane, like doing assisting work. And he did Tora, Tora, Tora. He did Porgy and Bess, like the classic one that he did. Some Abbott and Costello, Jack Benny. I mean, he's like legend. And they kind of drug him out for this because they thought he would click well with Belushi, apparently. I didn't know until tonight that the guy who says, yes, do you have this Miss Piggy is one of the stunt coordinators and that he was there probably because they're about to drive a car through the, <laughs> through the wall. That I did know because and the, and the way that I first found out about that was how that stuntman tied into the Robert Blake trial. <laughs> yeah, when that was in the news, when that whole trial was going on, any time he got brought up, it was a still shot of the Miss Piggy line. <laughs> His claim to fame. I love it. We've talked a little bit about the musical numbers, but the stunts and the, the ve- vehicular mayhem in the film. I mean, there are little things like driving the Illinois Nazis off of the bridge. Okay, that's great. That's a nice little car slash person stunt. The jump over the bridge at the beginning. Okay, that's great. But then you have that mall chase. Like, here we are in the first act. Here's this mall chase. And it is just one of the best things that I've ever seen. And it just is timed so perfectly. I love all those little asides that they're doing, like Pier 1 Imports, you know, and Susan, you mentioned disco pants and haircuts. You know, it's like, it's so good. Baby clothes. This place has got everything. But the way that it is with its cinematography, too, is like it's an epic version of all of these different genres. And... Landis was so great at that. So when you see that car chase in the mall, it's like a lot of car chases, car comedies you'd see at the time, especially the, uh, the Burt Reynolds movies, but on this big, epic destruction, even more so scale. And plus how, so it's shot like, that, but even more extreme. Even other things, too, like how when they go see the penguin, and it's shot like a horror film, like it's scary. And even the car chase when they're going through Chicago at the end, if the stuff in the mall is akin to like a Reynolds movie, this the car chase through the city at the end is like the French Connection. I'd say it's better than the French Connection. It's even more intense to me. Oh, yeah, I agree. I totally agree. Yeah, I cannot think of a more satisfying A, car chase scene, and B, the mall scene, the wrecking of the mall. It's like if an eight-year-old had to make this up in a dream, like that's what you would do. You know, the smashing of everything, the spectacular splintering, and they pick the best stores, the music store, the toy store. <laughs> it's just like the most colorful, the bakery, you know, and, and, and it's just everything is so thoroughly, beautifully smashed, smashed to smithereens. And again, like it's the cinematography, how they did it. And so they found an abandoned mall and, and just stocked it with 
millions of dollars worth of merchandise that they got for free, mostly. It's just, what a project. I mean, the execution of this, my God, it's like people have compared it to, you know, a war movie almost, you know, there's so much going on. That's a great analogy, being like you're a kid playing with your toys, because I could see myself being a little kid playing with all these toys in this city thing and making the heart, 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 heart sound that all of the SWAT guys are making at the end. Like, even if I didn't have the context of the movie, I could see myself doing that with my action figures as a kid. The stunt driving itself is so well done. You know, going back to the mall again, just there's one moment where uh, I think it's one of the cop cars is coming by the front of a store and just manages to like sideswipe all the front of the store and then kind of go back to normal driving for a second. And so it just breaks the entire front of the store, which is all glass. And it's like, oh, that is so nice. Just so much broken glass in that. It's, it's so satisfying. It's like, it's like the satisfaction you get when you watch an old disaster movie or like earthquake or something like that. Like it's, it's, yeah, that, that little kid satisfaction you get of watching all of this glass breaking. This month we've been talking a lot about musicals and as far as how the songs are they extraneous? Do they move the story along? And I think there's a little bit of everything when it comes to this because there are things like think, which really that's how, you know, Matt's wife is feeling and she's, you know, using this song to express uh, how she is. And then you get like uh, the, the old landmark, which is like this amazing gospel song. And then you get the, the moment with the uh, Elmer Bernstein music coming in and inspiring Jake and eventually Elwood to their quest. And then you get other things like at Ray's Music Exchange, where it's just like, okay, well, this it it doesn't necessarily move the the story forward, but it's a fantastic moment, and the movie would be much poorer without it. Because it also makes those parts to feel like like you're at a really great concert film, yeah. and you can easily even. At that time, you could easily see how that same exact thing could be done bad because the movie was released the same weekend as Can't Stop the Music. So same day as the Apple, by the way. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. <laughs> so you, you really had a really wide range of musicals that weekend. <laughs> and you get those concert film moments. You get the Blues Brothers performing at the Palace Hotel Ballroom and doing one and a half full songs. But it's just, it's fantastic. And there, you, again, you get that choreography. I love when they start to dance together and dance all the way down to the end and all the way back and kind of go off the stage together. I love that, that you can feel the camaraderie between these two actors who were really like brothers in real life and playing brothers on screen. It just, they, they click so well. And how talented even the characters are, because I love the line that John Candy has when they first walk in, and he's like, well, wait a minute, I've never actually heard these guys sing. <laughs> he actually wants to see this concert. It's amazing that John Candy doesn't interact, other than like a shot reverse shot, doesn't interact with Jake or Elwood at all in the entire film. Yeah, it is. And he's so underused, but of course, it's perfect for him still. You know, it's just, it's just nice to see him there. It's kind of like Twiggy. It's just like a little nice, just another little delightful little accent to the movie. 
And it adds to this world, too, how even John Candy is, like, hilariously nonchalant about some stuff. Like, like he's reacting to it, certainly, but it is this world where he has this funny reaction to the car slamming in that semi-truck in which the semi-truck driver keeps driving. And I love the hats, like Trooper Mount's hat being all destroyed. <laughs> the dude's backwards, too, and his feet are sticking up over his chair. This movie, every time I watch it, I definitely want an orange whip. Who wants an orange whip? Orange whip? Orange whip? Three orange whips. So on my shows, when I do podcasting, like I did The Shining, you were on that episode where we did the avocado scene. So I made an avocado. Uh, and then when I did, uh, I'm doing Rosemary's Baby, of course, I made a vodka blush. So I made a orange whip to drink while I'm doing this. Just so people know, it's one ounce vodka, one ounce rum, four ounces orange juice, and two ounces cream. And then you blend it and then you put it over ice. And Ooh. it's really good and i am literally sipping an orange whip but that actually what they were referring to in the movie is the commercial product more than the cocktail so i believe that they were supposed to do that as product placement that kind of came in from the side from the studio and john landis said to john candy like just somehow get the words orange whip in this movie (laughs) and and he improvised that and it's such a brilliant little perfect he did it perfectly i mean because it's memorable you just remember that he does it so wittily, you know, just completely spontaneously. Anyway, I do recommend I'm drinking it right now as we do this. The Orange Whip. Everybody do it. It's so memorable that when I was a little kid and he says that what I was picturing in my head as a kid was an or- was something akin to like an Orange Julius. Yes. Exactly. To the point to where even now it's like I know he's talking about an Orange Whip, but even now – when I see an orange Julius, my head goes back to that line, even though it's not the same thing. And what gets me is the finger pointing, and then the circle, and then the point down to the table. I love that. This is one of those films where you just memorize it as you watch it. And it was so strange to me to go back and read some of the earlier drafts of this, the screenplay, and to see a couple couple differences in there. After Jake gets out of prison... There's a scene where basically they drive from the prison, just almost like turn the corner and pull right into a whorehouse. And then <laughs> they, they get out, they go in, there's a couple of um, uh, sex workers in there, and Elwood does not drink or eat anything other than dry white toast, but they do offer him some tea. And so they go and they put the kettle on, Jake picks one of the women takes her back in the back room. By the time the kettle goes off, he's done already, and then hands his envelope full of $23.07 to the madam, and then they leave. I'm so glad they didn't do that. This is really a totally kid-friendly movie, except for the curses. I mean, you take out all those curses, and kids nowadays are used to curses. I mean, let's face it. Yeah. I would love, if I don't have kids, if I had kids, I would love for them to see this movie. Because it's really got so much heart. It's very moral, you know? I mean, didn't didn't you say the church or the Pope blessed it or approved it? Is that right? Yeah, I, I had read that. And then in that new Belushi documentary, there's even a shot, and I think it's John Paul II on the set. But I had heard that the Pope visited the set and blessed the film. And yeah, there's a picture. If it's not... John Paul, it's definitely a pontiff of some sort. And I was just like, well, that's not in the movie. And then I realized, oh, no, this is a behind the scenes still. Well, it, it just, it, you know, it really is. It's a sweet, sweet movie with a ton of heart. I mean, obviously, you want your kids to learn about this kind of music. Um, but, you know, it's there's really nothing in it. And and so that, that whorehouse scene just would have 
brought the whole thing down. And I know we're going to talk about Blues Brothers 2000 a little bit later. But man, that just, they just, they throw in a strip club and it just, I mean, uh, it just kills you. It, it's just so, it does, it did not age well at all. And it wasn't, it's not even that old. I would so show this to my kids. I absolutely agree. Because, I mean, I grew up, like, I, I wasn't the only, like, little kid around that time and in my age group who grew up watching this from a young age. Like, no, back then, like, yeah, it's an R for language and everything like that. But no one, none of us really took that as meaning adult film back right. then. Because, again, like I said, we just all talked like that anyway. <laughs> or maybe not me at, like, four years old, but my parents sure did. Well, and the violence is all almost literally cartoon violence, like especially Carrie Fisher shooting rockets at the transient hotel, blowing up the transient hotel, using a flamethrower on those propane tanks, and they never get a scratch on them. Nobody gets hurt in this film. Except the Nazis actually, I, I assume they died. I assume those Nazis died. But otherwise, I mean, Jake and Elwood should have died from that telephone booth rocketing into space and and falling to the ground and of course they didn't so it is ab- absolutely like a bugs bunny cartoon i mean there's no <laughs> there's no difference they should not have survived that um but i do think it's implied that the nazis are dead i'm pretty sure i always took it that way too i always i always took it that way as well i, I think just in the line the, the line where he goes like i've always loved you they're they're looking they look like in their face like they are about to die <laughs> Well, and if anybody deserves it, it's definitely those guys. I mean, of all the bad people in the movie, they're the ones that get it the worst. Thinking about it, as young as I was when I saw this for the first time, I guess this would have been my first introduction to Nazis as a kid. (laughs) And they really dropped that car from like a helicopter. You know, they really filmed it by dropping the car you know, from from many, many, many stories above and just kaboom, you know. Yeah, I love that. And I love, too, how after it drops and then you see it had dropped right in front of Jake and Elwood's car and how he has to do that and, like, jump over (laughs) again and can jump (laughs) whenever he needs it to jump. That horribly sad moment near the end of the film when he gets out of the car finally and the car just completely falls apart. It's one of the saddest moments ever on film. It is, man. I was so bummed out. When I, I still get bummed out when I see that. As a, as a kid, it's like, well, I didn't watch Old Yeller much when I was a kid, but I watched this and I feel like I had the reaction that other kids did at the end of Old Yeller. Being a fan of vehicular mayhem, I mean, this movie is just so full of so many good things and so many good stunts. I mean, just jumping the car whenever it needs to. And this scratched that uh, Dukes of Hazard itch before I even knew that I had one. And when they blow up the um, Vagrant's Hotel and, and then they just, you know, crawl out of the, the wreckage, there's, a, I actually saw um, someone explaining how they did that, which was, you know, and that's, again, this is all practical effects. Um, they did a uh, miniature. That's a miniature. You know, there's a lot of miniatures in this and you just would never notice it. Um, but that was, that was, they took a photograph of that film still and placed it onto a miniature and then painted the the car in front of it and like the tracks behind it were paintings, you know, taken from the still and then they just blew up the miniature at high at a high speed and put in some flashes and i should uh, acknowledge the person who figured that out um it's someone from industrial light and magic was just kind of watching it and going how did they do that you know because it was the he knew it was practical effects um oh todd vizari that's the person from industrial light and magic who figured it out the person who was doing these special effects was albert whitlock 
It looks so convincing, too, because everything about it. So right what you said earlier about like, oh, they just actually dropped a car, uh, you know, from a helicopter and everything. So, you know, if I'm watching this, someone and I turn to him and be like, oh, no, dude, they actually blew up like a real building in downtown Chicago. He'd probably be like, okay, well, I, I, I guess I buy it. <laughs> I could I could believe that they really blew up a big building in the city. I never ever thought about that. I thought for sure that it was a big building. And I never realized that the Bluesmobile is a miniature in some shots. Like even the shot where it's like flipping over end over end. I never knew that that was a miniature that they shot. I just thought, oh, they did this with the car. So kind of ruined my magic. We forget in the year 2020 that miniatures were a thing and they were quite effective. They were great. How it inspired the most random movies, too. It, it's just by sheer coincidence, a week or so ago, I did an episode on the slasher movie, uh, Happy Birthday to Me, that opens with these drunk college students jumping a bridge with their car in the same exact way, albeit not as epically shot as John Landis did. <laughs> in fact, one of them, did, it doesn't work. It straight up just falls into the water. <laughs> I'm like, uh, I'm watching it go like, hey, like, it is a very inspirational movie right down to this also happened in a slasher film that came out the next year. It's just all those crash cop cars. I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure those were all real. And that just was incredible that they could do that. And I love my favorite part of when they crash so many of those cars, because there's a couple of times when they do it, when they're all like coming down the hill um, after Elwin makes a turn, quote unquote. But when they crash inside the city, when uh, Elwood takes a hard left, I love how frustrated the cops are that they get out of the car and start shooting at them. <laughs> yes. I do too. And that even it leads to the like unnecessary force of the Blues Brothers has been approved. Yes. <laughs> like that's one of those explanations where I'm like, okay, that works because that's such an over the top cartoonish line. <laughs> and yeah, like them just opening fire on Lower Whacker is hilarious. And I mean, it broke a record for most cars used, right? 103 or something like that. Yeah, I think it did. And and I think it was topped by the sequel and then topped again pretty much immediately afterwards. Yeah, I did. that was how I remembered that was because I knew they were they mentioned that when the sequel came out that they wanted to top that record with the first one. Again, these cars were these were really they shut down Chicago, you know, lots of areas of Chicago and would for, for miles have the streets shut down. And, you know, and they were those cars were going 100 miles an hour and, you know, the whole thing. It was just uh, it was all real. You know, it just, you would never do that now. Never in a million years. Yeah, I love that Landis uh, after he what was it after he watched dailies, he was like, this doesn't look like it's real. So they ended up having to put pedestrians on the street to kind of give you like a gauge of how real people were walking. Yeah. He wanted to make sure that he was spending that money and you knew it. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. You have a, like, it's funny, but you also have anxiety watching it. Those bicyclists that go by, oh my God. And all the people in the uh, honor, honorable Richard J. Daly Plaza that are all scattering like the wind. It's like, okay, I can tell that one shot is being shot without a car or possibly without a car and just kind of pushing through the crowd. But there is definitely the car going through the crowd as well. And it's just like, this is like some Jackie Chan level shit going on here they always use stunt people whenever they had a, that kind of scene so you never it was never you know real extras it was always always just high, they hired tons of stunt people 
it mimics too how Belushi is in the mall when he's pointing out all the stores and they're, you know, it's, it's like they're kind of going on this tourism thing while in the middle of a car chase. And that's right down to kind of mimicking too how a lot of people are, myself included watch the finale as and you are pointing out locations even the other day when um, my wife and i were watching it when it showed the picasso like there's all this destruction and mayhem and these chases going on and my wife yeah like kind of like belushi in the mall she's pointing going like hey look the picasso and I'm like yeah if my estimations are correct we should be very close to the honorable richard j daly plaza The other thing that always kind of confused me about the film was I knew that so many of the players in the band were from the Saturday Night Live orchestra. At least, you know, the horn section was definitely all Saturday Night Live. And people forget just like how great that band was in the 70s. This is before... You know, things just kind of went to shit with with that band. Uh, They might be better now, but I haven't watched them since maybe Will Ferrell was on. So it's been a while. And then you get Matt Guitar Murphy and Donald Duck Dunn and all of these amazing players. I always wondered why Paul Schaefer wasn't involved. And then I was looking at the script and Paul Schaefer is actually written in the script and he's uh, Paul the Shiv Schaefer. And rather than Murph and the magic tones, it's Paul and the plush tones. And I have to say, Paul, the script version of Paul, is so obnoxious. I was always a big Letterman fan, but I, Paul Schaefer, he's such a cartoon character. You know, he was even on that show. I found him annoying, and I'm kind of glad. I'm kind of glad. He works perfectly for Blues Brothers 2000, but I'm kind of glad he couldn't make it. I don't know. That's just me. I do love Paul. I, I, I also grew up on Letterman and everything, and... When I do see him in movies, sometimes he works, but in, I remember when I saw Blues Brothers 2000 and when he pops up in that movie, I remember thinking the same thing, just going like, yeah, I'm kind of glad this wasn't in the first film. The way that this episode came about, like I said, this was one of those mountains that I dare not climb because I just love this film so much that I wanted to give it its proper respect. And... What really started this whole process was a few years ago, I found three songs. I think it was out on archive.org. And it was like, these are songs that weren't on the Blues Brothers soundtrack. And it's Murph and the Magic Tones doing Just the Way You Are, Quando Quando, and then the Blues Brothers doing Sink the Bismarck, which is one of those scenes you'll hear later in the show. John Landis talks about how there were certain scenes that were shot and then cut, and then there was another cut, and those first things that were cut were basically thrown out by Universal, and that's one of those scenes. Sink the Bismarck was... I, I am pretty sure they would have sang that at Bob's Country Bunker, which would have been almost too many songs because you would have had Raw High Sink the Bismarck and Stand By Your Man. And I think it just works better that Al Wood says, Sorry, we uh, couldn't remember the wreck of the old 97. Oh, why hell, you guys can learn it next time when you come back. Okay, you know, I didn't need to hear a third song, but seeing those songs, I was just like, oh shit, yeah, there's more music out here. There's more, like seeing that there is like an a, um, extended soundtrack that's out there that has Stand By Your Man on it. It's like, I had kind of checked out at the Blues Brothers for a long time and didn't realize that people had been unearthing things along the way. And so it's like, okay, now it's time for me to dive back in. 
it makes you appreciate how tight all those musical numbers are. Too. Oh, even yeah. when you, even when you do watch the extended version that has a couple of extended parts of some of the, the musical numbers, it does really make you appreciate the editing that went into the theatrical version and just really how tight they were right down to t- taking out just a couple of lines that were in the extended one. And I think there's at least one verse of Stand By Your Man that is cut completely. And it's like, okay, yeah, that works. I just need to see the happy couple up front hugging each other. And then the guy in the back who's crying in his beer. (laughs) I love love that they throw beer bottles even when they're happy. Right. (laughs) That's another one of those lines that I love. And Blue Lou Marini doesn't necessarily get too many lines in the movie. But when he looks up and goes chicken wire i now have a favorite thing about that scene now too like when i watched this again the other day watched it with my wife she'd never seen it before and one of the things she liked the movie but one of the things that she reacted to the most was in that scene when bob comes up to get their bill for the beer and elzo we thought it was complimentary and bob's like oh no no my wife is sitting there and she goes well that's bullshit Yeah, you really, you really feel for them. <laughs> you really do. Speaking of the extended universe, just I want to just highly recommend. I got my hands on the book Blues Brothers Private, which came out right after the movie, thanks to my friend New Yorker cartoonist Joe Dater, who had first edition copy because he bought it as soon as it came out. And it's a book that Judith Jacqueline Belushi's wife. And Tino and Insana, who had been in Belushi's original comedy improv group when he was really young, when he was just out of high school. So Judith Jacqueline and Tino and Sana put together this book, and it's just wonderful. And it's just a kind of National Lampoon-esque fake folder full of all of the information. It's as if you took the file out of the orphanage that was in the file cabinet of Mother Stigmata. And, you know, we're flipping through her files, which includes their childhood records and police reports. And then it has the, the you know, all the files uh, in the end on the band members, newspaper clippings, flyers for like James Brown's church and um, a newsletter from the Nazi party. And <laughs> so great. And you learn all of this, you know, fake in back information about their story, which includes Jake's mother, whose name was Artesia Parageorge who has no recollection of um, – she murdered somebody. She has no recollection of that. She has no recollection of getting pregnant, and she died in childbirth. Um, she would have named the child Jake, even if it was a girl. Um, and <laughs> um, and so that was his mother. Um, Elwood was dropped off to a newspaper uh, stand man. Someone just pulled the car up, bought a newspaper, and handed the, the guy a baby, which he brought to the orphanage. You know, it has their records. Again, uh, Jake shoplifted a five-pound roast beef when he was a teenager. He ended up in juvie, stole the truck. It has the wedding invitation. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. her. Real, it has her real name, which is Camille Zedetkalik. That's Carrie Fisher's real name. It's almost impossible to pronounce. And it has the, the a review of their, their performance at the Country Bunker. A newspaper review. It's, it is so great. So I just cannot recommend that enough. And it's the funnest thing I've ever seen. If you love this movie, you got to get it. That sounds really cool. That sounds incredible. I didn't even know that that thing existed until I was doing my research. And then I was just like, Oh my God, I have to get my hands on it. And then it was like, 
oh my God, it's like three days before we record. There's no way I can get it. <laughs> yeah, I was so lucky because my friend Joe was just like, oh, I have this thing I have to give you. I have to give it to you. I was like, thank you. And I actually, because of COVID, you know, went to his apartment and he like put it at the doorstep and I picked it up like just like it was a top secret document. We We didn't even see each other when I... <laughs> When I absconded with it. So there you go. Thanks, Joe. I feel so bad that Carrie Fisher doesn't have a name in the movie, that she's just Mystery Woman. I kind of like that. I kind of like it. I like, too, how there's a real symmetry to the film as far as as we get more antagonists, like we, we, you know, as we go through the film, it's like the Carrie Fisher's trying to kill them. The cops are after them. Now the rednecks are after them, the good old boys. And now the, the Nazi party. I think I switched two of those. But then how at the end of the movie, it's like, now we get rid of Carrie Fisher. Now we get rid of the Nazis. Now we get rid of the good old boys. Now we get rid of uh, the cops. Again, I switched it. But it's like, I love that there's that symmetry between the beginning and the end and that you have just all of these people that are after them throughout the entire film. Elwood is also kind of an audience avatar there at that one point when it all builds up to Carrie Fisher shooting at them in the tunnel, and then they duck, and you've seen her a few times before then, and then and seemingly beforehand, it doesn't even come across like they're even aware she's there, and then when she shoots up and, and, and they duck, Elwood has that line of, who is that girl? <laughs> like, he's almost kind of the audience at that point. No, I love it. I love it. It's such a, again, just a added layer of just, you know, it's just a, a spice in the movie. Like it, ha- it didn't have to be there. You wouldn't miss it if none of that was in there. You wouldn't even, you wouldn't notice it. You wouldn't miss it. But like, it's so, it's such, there's no uh, heaviness to it. It's just perfectly done. And it does, I like too that it does add a little bit of backstory there that at one point Jake was engaged to this woman and then just like disappeared on their wedding day. And even thinking about it, you're like, I think I so I sort of understand where he's coming from. And that like, man, here's someone who's like blown up an entire building of people to kill this man. It's like, and she's talking about like, I, I think in the extended version, she even mentions like be, her dad was part of the mafia or something. So I'm like, okay, thinking about that, it's like, all right, I, I sort of understand why he would, like, disappear as opposed to, like, having a conversation with this person. And it's also totally believable that she's psycho enough to then just immediately fall back in love with him and just be like, okay. <laughs> and and that, like, he d- he does that with his eyes, too, where it's like he takes his glasses off, does a thing where it's uh, with his eyes which alludes to, like, he's done this before. Like, he knows this move is going to work. I love Elwood when he props himself up on his elbow and he's watching them. Like, he's the audience, again, to your point, Brad. He's kind of like, okay, how's this going to play out here? <laughs> That's true, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, how did you let it get that far, Jake? You know, and, and at least she has a very successful business. This was the first time I, I had heard that joke of uh, calling a beauty salon curl up and die, which was nice. And she was engaged to Dan Aykroyd, right? Yeah. At the, during this movie, yeah. Yeah, I had heard that uh, John Belushi was just like, you two would make a cute couple, you should go out. And I'm not sure what state she was in during this, because I know she had plenty of substance abuse problems. And then, of course, with Belushi having just a ton of substance abuse problems. I, there's a couple shots where I'm like, okay, I think he might be on stuff when he's more plugged up. There's a, a few times, like he sounds like he's nasally. And I'm like, I wonder if he's on something here. I was kind of thinking that too, like, cause having 
gone through my shit in my twenties. Um, when I, when I was watching it, I was kind of looking for that in some scenes. And there were a couple of parts where I was like, well, not really in his, I couldn't really tell in his delivery or anything like that. But there were a couple things like where he'd be sort of sweating. And I'd be like, he's not fidgeting or anything like that, but you can see some sweat on his face in a couple scenes where you might not think that there would be otherwise. And I remember thinking, I'll bet you that's probably real. Landis had said that it was fortunate that they wore their sunglasses through the whole thing because of his eyes. He did a lot of coke. And so was Carrie claims that John and one one interview. Now these people always are changing their stories, but she in one interview she said that he had actually Blue she'd actually turned her on to coke during this film, and she definitely had problems during this film. But he really had problems, and um, when they did that scene where he took off his glasses, Landis apparently had said to him, um, "We're gonna be doing this scene, so stay clean for you know at least twenty four hours or forty eight hours, so your eyes look clear because it had been that bad." And at one point, he had walked in his trailer and there was like a mountain of coke and he and Landis had like flushed it down the toilet and they both were sobbing. I mean, it was this really, I mean, they went through a lot of apparently, I mean, I know you interviewed Landis and I haven't heard that interview, but I don't know if he gets into this, but clearly um, from some of the interviews I read, you know, they, they had, they really went through a lot dealing with his problem and Landis, you know, was in tears over it at one point. Yeah. I always wondered about Joe Walsh being in it because I think... Joe Walsh was friends with this guy, Smokey Wendell, that they talk about in the Belushi documentary, that Smokey Wendell was the guy who eventually was assigned to John to be like, not quite a bodyguard, but basically be the guy to keep him off drugs and to like really enforce, like, you know, stay away from drugs and was there constantly. And the documentary, the Belushi documentary is really sad because it's like, okay, and then things seemed to get better. Smokey eventually went away and then John immediately got back on drugs. And it's just, if the, I don't know if you guys have had a chance to watch that Belushi doc, but just to see all of these people that surrounded Belushi that were just enablers and all of the people that were just like, Hey, I did coke with John Belushi. So they're like bringing him vials of all of this stuff and all of these different drugs. It wasn't just cocaine. He was on a bunch of different stuff and just like, yeah, we loading him up with drugs. He was like a pig and slop with it. Yeah, it was great seeing all of that and all these stories with uh, the right people talking about it and the right context for a lot of these stories. Because, yeah, when I was a kid before then, it was just that terrible freaking movie wired holy crap man so yeah like i remember that tried doing like the onset stuff between landis and belushi but it's that movie so it was portrayed stupid uh i never caught wired and now i'm like half oh, you never saw it i'm so half tempted to like find it now and splice in that scene right here john you're killing yourself this is economically unfeasible now, don't do this to my movie. Don't do this to me, John. Don't do this to Judy. Don't do this to yourself. <laughs> my God, I just pushed the star of my movie. I actually didn't even remember that they made a movie out of that. Because I, I know the Woodward book, but I I mean, I yeah. It was Michael Chiklis playing Belushi, if memory oh, serves. Oh, jeez. He does an all right job. Like, there are 
a couple moments in the movie that sort of work. Other than that, it's like one of the worst trying to be like, it's a wonderful life things you'll ever see because the movie is starts with John's ghost waking up in the morgue and he's being taken around by Ray Sharkey, who plays his guardian angel, who's a Latino cab driver named Angel. I'm not, I'm not making any of this up. This happens in this movie. Like, and so when it's the, when it's showing the part where like Landis punches him out in the trailer uh, on set of the Blues Brothers, but it's done like you're watching this after school special where the guy playing Landis just goes, Oh my God, I just punched my movie star. Like, it's, <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> I gotta, I gotta stop myself because I'll go on a rant about this movie. <laughs> if, if you've never seen it, You'll you'll be in for some surprises when you watch that movie. They used a clip of that in the Belushi doc, right? Of him getting up in the morgue, I think? Yeah, that's the beginning of the movie. He wakes up in the morgue because the morgue attendant leaves a donut sitting on top of the body. And then Belushi wakes up like he's Bluto going, huh, huh, eats this donut, wakes up in the morgue, and runs out like it's... Bluto running out of the room where the horse died. You're watching it going, I don't think this really happened. Like, it's it's so beyond, like, jaw-droppingly tasteless. Yeah, this, this was a huge, what they considered to be a hugely bloated budget. There were, I read there were like five films that were in this ballpark within a couple of years of each other. The Star Trek, 1941, we know that movie. Apocalypse Now, Heaven's Gate, and the Blues Brothers, they were all in the 25 million range. And back then, that was like, you know, huge. That was crazy. People thought that was crazy. I think this was worth every penny. You know, I think you could see the money and it, it is all well spent. A lot of people thought it was a little bit of a crime to spend that much money on, on a movie like this. It works in this because you can tell that's not their only focus. Like, there's a lot of big budget movies of that time that I enjoy primarily for seeing the scope of the money on screen. I do like Heaven's Gate, but I'll admit most of my enjoyment from that comes from just kind of seeing the the money and the scope of this epic. It definitely doesn't have anything to do with the characters or anything like that. Whereas... The Blues Brothers, yeah, you can sit there and, and admire that you definitely do see the money on screen, but you can tell that there's so much passion in every aspect of this movie, from certainly, yeah, the spectacle of it, but also the comedy and the subtleness of the comedy and the performances and, and the chemistry and the soundtrack and everything. You can tell that their heart was so 100% into every aspect of the movie, and, and, and yeah, including the budget, definitely the budget, too. Yeah, I was reading an article, and I can't remember, I think it was... Michael O'Donohue, famously from SNL and, and, uh, Mondo movies. And he was making fun of Belushi for being in this because he was also in 1941. And then I remember reading too that people were calling this 1942, like it was going to be the next disaster. And you couldn't get farther away from 1941 with this movie, in my opinion, anyway, because I don't want to kick a dog when it's down, but 1941 is just one of the worst things to me. I'll balance it out here. Don't worry, because I love 1941. I adore 1941. I, I I grew up with that movie, too. And it wasn't until 
because my parents also really loved 1941. So I also grew up with that film. And it wasn't until way years later that I knew that it was a bomb or not like, I mean, it, it, it wasn't like Heaven's Gate bomb or anything like that, but it didn't make as much as Jaws or Close Encounters or anything like that. But a, a critical bomb, certainly. I still watch that movie and laugh. And you can certainly tell that like spectacle was probably their one of their main priorities with that, but I still do laugh at its comedy with the blues brothers though. It's a much more focused movie. Whereas 1941's very ensemble. There, there's a lot of different stories going on between the Tim Matheson stuff, the Robert Stack stuff, the things with Wally and all that. Whereas the Blues Brothers is, it's more focused. It's, it's primarily, there's a lot of side stuff going on, but it all ties into the Blues Brothers. It all has to do with those two main characters. So it's, it's, it's a more focused movie, certainly. I think there's just a lot more wit in the Blues Brothers. You, you know, this was just much more developed. I mean, you know, a lot of these great classic movies were projects that were around for a long time. I mean, Rocky Horror Picture Show, I, I was just thinking about that movie recently. You know, they had been working on that for years. They had workshopped it and then it was a tiny little thing and then it grew and grew for years and years until they made the movie. And, you know, a lot of movies are like that. And clearly the Blues Brothers was just an idea that they were kicking around for a while, you know, for a few years at least. And so it had time to really gel into a very witty thing. And then, you know, all the stars came together because obviously the choreography, the, the musical numbers are so witty. And, um, you know, Landis was so perfect directing this. And I don't know, there is some magical element to this. That I just think they must have felt as they were making it. You could just, you know, you could see that somehow everything was clicking really beautifully, even when it was difficult to do. Kind of in a way, Jaws, you know, it's a little co comparable to Jaws where it was difficult, but, you know, you kind of, you know, working with actors who weren't great actors and dancers who weren't great dancers, it just had some magic to it. They were giving them backstories. I remember the liner notes to um, Briefcase Full of Blues had like a whole Jake had a vision. It was his. It was the only one he ever had. I had this like whole mythology that they were talking about. You know, you talked about the, the book and they already were talking about like the Rock Island City Orphanage. So they were working on this two years before the movie came out. And it's just a matter of like taking that 354 page script that Aykroyd put together and trying to winnow it down into an actual movie. So let's make it a mini series. <laughs> These days, I'm surprised that it wouldn't be. You know, they they did try to make it into a cartoon for a little while in the Super Nintendo game, and then they made Blues Brothers 2000. But we can talk about that in a bit. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stay tuned. All right, let's go ahead and take a break and play a trio of interviews. First up, we're going to hear from Layla Nabulsi, who was the production coordinator on Briefcase Full of Blues. After that, we'll hear from Trooper Mount himself, Stephen Williams. And then we'll hear from the director of the Blues Brothers, John Landis. And we'll be back with all of those right after these brief messages. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superman episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth 
a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Dusty McGowan's latest book, The Devil is Alive and Well, the auteur's cut, is available now in paperback, Kindle, and audiobook. Mental illness, isolation, and death? Now, that's my idea of a good time. Does the devil himself spend his off hours in dive bars? Where do Egyptian mummies go when they just can't seem to pass away? These, and many other important questions, are answered in this collection of stories that blend magic, realism, and dark comedy. The Devil is Alive and Well, the auteur's cut, may be found on Amazon, Apple Books, Audible, and all fine booksellers. The new streaming service, Film Movement Plus, opens up a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best films from around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are some of the best films from 2020, including The Wild Goose Lake, Zombie Child, and more. Available on Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, as well as streaming online and on mobile, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But, as a listener of the Projection Booth, Film Movement Plus will give you a 30-day free trial, plus the next three months at 50% off when you use the promo code PROJECTION. Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. And for one lucky listener every week this month, January 2020... I am giving away a full year's membership to Film Movement Plus. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at ProBoothCast.com for more information on how you can get this great prize. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, we're going to hear from Layla Nabulsi, who was the production coordinator of Briefcase Full of Blues. She was also the president of the Blues Brothers. You'll hear more about that during the interview. There's also a bonus interview with Layla where you can hear more about her career and her part in making Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And you can download that probably the day that this is available. You're almost like Zelig. Like I look around and it's just like, oh, here's a picture of Layla and she's with these folks and here she is over here. And it's just like, I want to know your story. I want to know where you grew up and how you got involved with all of this stuff that you've been involved with over the years. I did not grow up around any kind of show business. My dad was Arab. My mom was from Kansas. They met at the University of Missouri. My dad came over on the boat and he ended up getting his doctorate in economics at Georgetown University. And they married when they were 20, lived off campus. They actually eloped. It was a big scandal, you know, in those days. 
to marry a, a foreigner. They had me when they were quite young and they were like 25 or something. And we lived in, in the East Coast near Washington. And then my dad eventually got in, started working for the United Nations and he worked for the United Nations most, you know, for the rest of my life and, um, or his life. We moved around a lot, you know, and, and we would go back to the Middle East every other summer. And then every other summer, we'd go and visit my mom's family in uh, Kansas and Missouri. So I had two cultures. My dad was a very intellectually, he loved reading all kinds of books. And he turned me on to a lot of stuff. And he knew, you know, there was always music. And there was always, there was a very artistic strain in the house. And both my sister and I were pretty artistically inclined. But both my parents worked in that environment, like my dad at the UN for the diplom, you know, and he was sort of in the diplomatic corps of the UN and UNDP. And then he ended up running the United Nations volunteer program. My mom got her library degree from home when she was had the kids. And, and then she ended up working for international trade. And, and for a little girl from Kansas, she was one of those people that got out. She wanted to see the world. And so we traveled. And, and so that was kind of, my upbringing, I was exposed to a lot. I remember my mom taking me to see, this is going to date me, but Carol Burnett in The Entertainers, you know, in New York. And I was drawn to theater and I was always drawn to that kind of thing, but I was incredibly shy. So I never really was in any school plays or anything like that. I was mostly like writing my own little books and things like that at home. And I was playing piano and I was into music. I was really into music always following the music of the day. And by the time we moved to Morocco for two years, I went to boarding school for, for my first two years of high school in England. And then my last years of high school, I came back to New York City. And that's where they had moved back to the city by then. And I was just, I went to the UN school for two years. I was basically playing hooky a lot, going to concerts. I mean, I saw Ziggy Stardust the first time he came to New York and, you know, and I, I was just, a, you know, a teenager running around with my friends and getting in. I don't know how we got into these places. I don't remember buying a ticket or, you know, and I was a deadhead when I was 16 and I went to all the dead concerts and <laughs> and then I kind of ran away from home because I, I wasn't good. I didn't want to go to college and. I went to college. I skipped a year and hitchhiked through Europe with my best girlfriend from the UN school, who was Alyssa Guest, who was Chris Guest's sister. And in fact, when we were, that's how that whole connection happened. When we were in high, her father was also in the UN. So when we were in high school, we went to see Lemmings because her brother, her older brother, Chris, was in Lemmings with John Belushi and Chevy Chase and all those guys. Well, anyway, I ended up going out with Chris Guest, and then I we went up to the, the Lampoon. We were at the Lampoon radio hour all the time, and that's where I met, kind of, well, I met Belushi in the village, because there was a whole bunch of people through the National Lampoon that we all were friends before Saturday Night Live happened, and that was sort of the gang, and I lived in this tiny little one, you know, studio apartment on Perry Street, and John and Judy lived on Bleecker Street, literally between Charles and Perry, around the corner from me. And everybody else lived in the neighborhood. And we would, in those days, we would all meet for breakfast or we'd all figure out what was going on that night. And we'd all meet up or there was several places people would hang out. But we didn't have cell phones and we didn't have answering machines. <laughs> I mean, I think eventually we did. But you know what I mean? In those days, you were just like hanging out and you would 
run around and you'd run into each other or you'd go up to the radio hour and then you'd go from there and it was all kind of organic. When I broke up with Chris, I became really good friends with Belushi and Judy, with his wife. So we became kind of best friends. And then Saturday Night Live happened quite shortly. And so that became a bigger pool of people. And I was like the kid on the block. I was really a much younger than all of them. And But I wanted to work. You know, I had a sort of work ethic from my dad and, you know, what are you doing with the rest of your life? And since I knew I studied acting when I was 19 for about a year, I was too shy and freaked out to be an actress. So I, I, I ended up just kind of, I worked on the Saturday Night Live book. Somebody drafted me into that. And then John did a short film with Tom Schiller. And then he had me work on it with them. And he sort of gave me to Tom Schiller and said, here, you know, put her to work. So Tom taught me everything about making short films and, And so I did that, and I made all these short films with Tom, which was really fun. So we were kind of a duo, and that was it. I was either hanging out, you know, with John and Judy and Danny and all those guys, or Schiller, and up at the show. And that became, you know, it was just a 24-7 kind of, it was like, I say it's kind of was my college. You know, my college was Saturday Night Live, which doesn't really set you up for anything (laughs) late night comedy, live comedy doesn't really give you equipped for anything else in life. But no, I was very grateful. It it was really, I could have just hung out and been a friend, you know, but the truth is I wanted to do something. I wanted to work. And I, I had a certain talent for a, which I didn't realize was sort of producing in that time of just, you know, putting things together and running around and getting people together and everybody seemed to be okay with me. You know, and I'm pretty funny, so I guess that was it. But it was a, it was an education in comedy. I mean, I had to, you had to be able to hang with the boys, and you had to be able to hang out when it got heated in the kitchen. You couldn't have too many sensitive feelings, you know, about stuff. How did you get involved with the uh, Briefcase Full of Blues album? You know, if I was going to write a book about those years, I thought that things that happened in like four years all happened in 1978. It all happened so fast, but. In the fall of 77, he was shooting Animal House in Oregon, and then he had, and he and Judy were there. And I didn't go there, but he met this guy, Curtis Salgado, which I'm sure you've heard of him. He was a blues musician. And he started hanging out with Curtis, and Curtis turned him on to the blues and really gave him a big education in, in blues. And John just fell in love with the music. So when he came back from shooting, there was a period where he just, forced us to listen to the blues all day and all night. <laughs> I mean, Mitch Glazer and I had that joke where we'd like leave John's house at like 4 a.m. and we'd, we'd both look at each other and our joke was, we hate the blues, you know. But really, it was just because we had to listen to it 24-7, you know. And then John just, you know, wanted to sing. the You know, he, his the progression was he liked jumping up and singing stuff. And then we were always going to hear music in town. So we would go to the Lone Star or any of these places. And John would just, if there was a blues band, you know, like Delbert McClinton would come to town or one of these people who would come and John would go, hey, I know a song. And they would know the song, of course, you know, one of these classics. And so he would jump up and just start singing, singing the song, you know. And it was just our way of having a good time, quite honestly. It wasn't like anybody was thinking about, you know, being the Blues Brothers. And then they had done a B sketch where they were kind of blues brothers guys, you know, or something, even though John hated those B costumes. But, and the other thing is I kind of think it was a way to draw Danny back into the fold a little bit because 
they, he and Judy had gotten married and, and Danny was kind of like, they're married now and we should leave them alone. We're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and John would just say, come over and play the harmonica, you know, in the, you know, so then he would get Danny to jump up with him when we would go out and, you know, across these poor bands, you know, who were quite happy at that time to have us there because John was getting famous at that point, I guess a little bit, but, but anyway, it was just, for us, it was just fun. It was the sort of natural progression of getting so involved in a certain kind of music. And if you're a performer like John and he liked to sing, you know, he wanted to see what that felt like, you know, and have fun with it. So he did. And then we kind of did this Blues Brothers thing from the fall of 77 to like April 78, like in the spring. Then he, they, we did Saturday Night Live. And, and so the Blues Brothers, because then they started doing this thing where they would kind of warm up the crowd before the show. And then then, they, then we started getting into this whole idea of the Blues Brothers. They were brothers and they would wear the shades. It was kind of just a made up thing that we kind of all did together, you know. And uh, Judy and I went and bought the handcuffs for the briefcase. And we were always running around doing, like, you know, they were working on the show. And we were always running around doing all these things like let's get this together you know find some handcuffs and we'll run out with a long chain I remember that and so they did that and then really what happened was that it was at the Lone Star one night this club the Lone Star in New York and Michael Kleffner from Atlantic Records was there and John and Danny would jump up and did their usual thing right and and Michael Kleffner said they should do an album and so he went to Ahmet Erdogan at Atlantic and said these guys were starting out live and they, they were singing the blues at this thing. And he talked him into doing an album, you know, giving us, I guess. And what he did was he booked the blues brothers, quote unquote, which didn't exist as a band at the time to open for Steve Martin at the, you know, for nine nights at the amphitheater. And John told, this was our present at the um, animal house premiere. That was July. So by that July at the premiere, John said, I have a present for all of you. We're going to do the Blues Brothers. We're going to make an album. We were like, what? And he said, Judy will design the whole thing. Cause she was a designer. So she was going to design the look and the, you know, all the stuff. And Layla, you're the president of the Blues Brothers, which meant I had to do all the arranging work, you know, like, and then Mitch, you'll write the liner notes, you know, you'll write the liner notes for the album. And that was our present at, at, at the Animal House, you know, premiere. He told us that in the hotel before we went to the premiere. So we were like, okay. He goes, we have to get a band together. <laughs> we're like, I mean, the funny thing is we just sort of made up our own thing. You know, we didn't know what we didn't, we, you know, we weren't in the music business, you know, we weren't, it, it just came out of our love of what we'd been already doing, you know, just for fun. So here's your present. It's a ton more work to do. President of the Blues Feathers meant that I did like five jobs that you would normally do if you were running a band. Okay, let's just say tour manager, road manager, travel agent, anything, anything. I had 11 guys and anything they needed, wanted, had to get from the equipment to the, I, I was, it was me. And we had a producer, I mean, we had the music producer, Bob Tischler. So he took care of all that, you know, the, the, the actual you know, instruments and recording and, you know, all of that. But everything else I did by myself. And those were the days too, when you didn't have internet or anything, right? So you're doing everything by landlines and pieces of paper. 
I remember like when we got to, uh, we all stayed at the Sunset Marquee and I had, my room was just piles of papers all on the floor, right? Just different piles of different things that I was doing. And I could hear the guys from my room outside. So I could sort of keep tabs on what was going on. And then we also had this crazy thing where we were like, okay, we're the Blues Brothers. So we have to like dress the part, you know, so you have to have black clothes. And and then when we went to LA, I was like, okay, we're all going to rent, rent, rent a rec, like beat up cars. <laughs> and, and everybody went along with it, except for the one true blues person in the band, you know, Matt Guitar Murphy was coming from Chicago. And he was like, I don't want a wreck. I don't want a car that's a wreck. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I had to get him a different, and he didn't want to stay with us at the Sunset Marquee, he stayed at the Tropicana, you know. He was like the real blues guy. We, uh, we were just dressing the part. Well, we all had the blues, but, you know. And it was so funny because we were all in black and in this whole sort of thing of the blues brothers and this sort of like, we're the blues. And Steve Martin's crew, we were opening for Steve Martin, and he was all dressed in white, and he had this sort of like very uptown Tony crowd in his in his dressing rooms, you know, where they were always sipping champagne or, you know, white wine. They They were like... They were like totally different than us, you know, and we were like the bad crowd and they were like the good crowd, you know. Did you help put together the band and see how all of these pieces fit together? Oh, Oh, wow. Oh, totally. Yeah. And also the songs that we picked and transcribing the songs. Okay. Like that was my job as well. So the funny story about that was there was this song that I was, because, you know, you couldn't look up lyrics on Google, right? Some of those blues lyrics are really obscure you know you've had to like find the recordings and listen to them over and over again and try to write them down I was really I really liked lyrics so I was kind of good at it but there was one song Stuff My Broom which was an Elmore James song Elmore James and I think Robert Johnson wrote it but anyway it's one of those songs that you can't understand a word they're saying on the song and no matter how many different versions I listened to, I would they'd be like, that's my broom, blah, blah, blah. You know, <laughs> like what? And it was on the list of songs we wanted to, to do. And I mean, I spent so many hours on that song and I was laughing about it today because I looked it up to see, wait, I wonder what the lyrics are, you know? So I looked it up and they have like 10 different versions. So they don't know what the lyrics are. <laughs> but I, find, I I finally told John, I said, we're not doing this fucking song, okay? I'm sorry. I don't know what they're saying. Unless you want to make up your own lyrics, we're not doing it. So we didn't do it. I also tried to get them to do Love is Like an Itching in My Heart, that Supreme song, which wasn't really the blues. And we rehearsed it once, but it didn't work either. But beyond that, we rehearsed for two weeks, less than two weeks in LA. The band had never played together before, but we put them together. I mean, some of them, had played together before because they were really the core of it was the Saturday Night Live band. You know, you had Steve Jordan on drums and the three horn players initially started with the three horn players from the show. And then we had met Cropper and Duck Dunn on New Year's Eve at this party, which was weird that we met them right before that. So, of course, when we were putting the band together, we thought, oh, yeah, let's get them. But it was, you know, it was kind of when I think back on it and also when when we were told we were going to do this album and John told us, that was July. We were at the amphitheater in September. 
And in those days, there weren't hours with lawyers and deal making and all that stuff. It was like, okay, we're doing it. I don't know. I don't know how I wasn't really involved with the financing part of the thing. So I, I just, it didn't seem to be a problem. I mean, we were just going, you know, like, let's go. And everybody got the same amount of money. You know, that was the deal. Like everybody was the same. There was no negotiations, you know. The band opened for Steve Martin for, what'd you say, a week? Nine nights. We recorded all nine nights. That's, that's the first album. That's Briefcase Full of Blues. Cause they're all live. So did you then work and say, like, this is the best take of this, this is the best take of that, and let's stitch them all together? No, I didn't work. That was Bob Tischler, the, you know, the music producer side of it. And I, no, I mean, as I remember it, I, I think they just took the best takes. We did the same set pretty much, you know, every night. So they just, they just did, they didn't do a lot. I don't think they did a lot of editing. They just did this, the best takes of each song, I guess. Because it, it came out really fast. It wasn't like they were they were in the studio for out for you know months or anything with it. You know, it was sort of like okay, here it is. You're recording in September, and I want to say that this hit the streets, yeah, very quickly thereafter. Yeah, I I actually don't know. I was going to look that date up because I was curious because that's what I'm saying. From the time John told us, then we did Carnegie Hall October 11th. Then we did Winterland, and we closed New Year's Eve. We closed the Winterland. It was the last performance at Winterland, and we opened for the Grateful Dead. Then we went double platinum, and then we were at the R&R convention. Like, the R&R convention was like 17, you know, I don't know when the, you know, the radio record, whatever that thing is, that was like sometime shortly after where we got our platinum and gold albums and everything. And it was, yeah, less than a, less than a year. That's what I'm saying. Like, I'm like, all, when I think back on it, it didn't seem like it was so fast because that's just the way we did things. And we were so used to Saturday Night Live, you know, where you do a show in a week. We were all trained to kind of, oh, we're putting on a show. Okay, we're putting on a show. We can do it. We can rehearse in two weeks. We can get it up. You know, nobody, that's who, kind of who we, the kind of types of what we were used to. So for us, it didn't seem like a big deal. And I think a lot of people were really surprised when we showed up at the amphitheater because I think they thought it was going to be like a joke thing when the music was so good. They were like, wait, what? You know, like it's a real band, you know? <laughs> you know? So that was kind of gratifying, I have to say. Because I don't think anyone thought, didn't really realize what we were. Well, obviously, they didn't know what we were doing because we were doing it so fast. But also, when, it came, when, when people came to the amphitheater, they were like shocked, you know, because it was such a great show and it was such, and the music was so awesome, you know, live. What happens after they go double platinum with this? What, what happens to you as the president of the blues brothers? Things got a little bit weird because, you know, when things get big and suddenly you're a very young person, you should really be in college and you're sitting on top of the, biggest band in the country at that moment, you know what I mean? The double platinum band or whatever. And suddenly you're, you're in the music business, you know, and suddenly you're like, wait a minute. And it becomes all like sharky and, you know, different kind of waters, you know, if I had been more not so young and kind of idealistically kind of didn't know what was happening, I, I, I might've gone, Oh, I can parlay this into a career in the music business, you know, but, we didn't really think like that. It was more like uh, John and Judy and I had an office together called Phantom. And, you know, I had an office there. John had an office. Judy had an office. And we were 
we were kind of looking down the road at like other things we were going to do, you know, movies or this or that. And I, so I, I didn't really think that I was going to go into the music business suddenly. I didn't know if I really liked the music business because after the R&R convention, which was kind of not so great, and there was something about it that we didn't like. It was it got it felt corporate, even though we weren't, and John and Dan weren't. It just started to feel like, oh, no, now we're in this thing. It's a big deal now. And that sort of changes things, and I don't know. You know, John and Danny left the show. And then I stayed for like another half of a year and I did, I did a couple more films with Schiller and then I ended up moving to Colorado. I, I left and ran away with Hunter Thompson. So that's what I did. Leila, thank you so much. I think I rattled on a lot. Darling, let me tell you something, girl, I've been trying to say. You look so sweet and you're so, so doggone fine. I just can't get you out of my mind. You become the sweet taste in my mouth now. And I want you to be in my spouse so that we can live happily now. You know you got to groove me, baby Oh, yeah Well, make me feel good inside Come on Groove me, baby I need you to groove Up next, we're going to hear from Stephen Williams, who has acted in a lot of things, but one of his early roles was working as Trooper Mount in The Blues Brothers. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got into acting and some of those early gigs for you? I got into acting to get laid, Mike. That's my standard truth. I was actually a model in Chicago for a little while. I um, I was in apparel sales. And I was a shoe salesman, and uh, I sold ladies' clothing. I was sort of in the fashion business in Chicago at one point. And a lot of my clients were female ad agency executives or models, bunch of attractive women and I'm selling them clothes, shoes and da da da. And one of them suggested, a couple of them, a few of them suggested that I had the physique to be a model. And I literally thought to myself, oh, cool. I could get into this world. So at the time, my best buddy was a photographer at Playboy. He was the first African-American photographer to be on staff at Playboy magazine. This was during the 70s. We got together and he shot a portfolio of me, and I hit the streets as a model, literally, trying to get in with, with all these women and these female ad agencies and da-da-da-da-da. Someone asked me, I remember a guy asking me if I acted. He was a, he had a community theater in Deerfield, Illinois. And I said, yeah. I had never acted before in my life, but I said, yeah. I was having a great time as a model. I was actually making a living as a model in Chicago. And I went and did this play called Slow Dance on the Killing Ground. It was a three-character, three-hour play. Two weeks to go, one of the actors had fallen out. They had shortened the play, of course, to about two and a half hours. And I went in and did this role and got good reviews. And that's when I learned I had a knack for acting. I'll always remember the last line 
of the review. It said, we will surely see Stephen Williams in theater again. And from that point, I started doing plays in Chicago. I worked at the Goodman Theater, Jackie Taylor's Black Ensemble Theater. I mean, that became my existence was modeling and acting. So it was a fluke, in other words. I never studied acting. I never really wanted to be an actor. It was just dropped in my lap, so to speak. And during the course of uh, my jobbing, I like to call it, in Chicago, I think, yeah, I got a role in Cooley High. And then, of course, Blues Brothers came to town. And I got a role in Blues Brothers. And that was the one, because that was the one that brought me to Hollywood. What was that experience like for you? I mean, I know you had done Cooley High. I think you had also done uh, Monkey Hustle at that point. Oh, yeah, Monkey Hustle. Small role. I don't even think I'm in Monkey Hustle. I think that was whatever I did in there. It's probably cut out. I don't think I've ever seen the movie. Yeah, what I did in that movie. Tell me about that, uh, getting the role in the Blues Brothers. And, and you talked about how that, that brought you out to California. I mean, that must have been quite an experience for you. I, I guess they came to town and I auditioned like, you know, a great deal of the other actors did. What's fascinating about this role is that it was a two-week role. It was slated for two weeks. All right, Trooper Mount, um, the state trooper. So we shot the movie, and they didn't, they had one scene that they did not get around to. And it was a nighttime scene. Uh, and I think it was a scene where they're chasing the guys in the uh, recreational van, and the guy's foot gets stuck, and then they crash into um, the water. The damn thing goes into the water. This is one where they knock over the fire hydrant and shoots up. And I think my line at the end of that is, boys, you in big trouble. They failed to shoot that scene in Chicago. So they shipped me out to, to California. And they come out into L.A. We're going to shoot this scene in L.A. All right. So I go out. They put me up at the Sheraton uh, Hilton uh, uh, there in Hollywood, close to Universal Studios. I sat in that hotel for almost, hell, three months. This is a two-week job, right, that it started out at. And every day they would come up to the hotel. It was great. It was so great. Pick me up, take me down to the studio. Nightfall would come. I'd sit there all night. The sun would start to come up. They'd come back to the trailer and go, Okay, Steve, we're not going to get to the scene today. Uh, tonight, uh, you're wrapped. You know, see you tomorrow. This, this literally went on for three months. I mean, you know, on my days that I was supposed to work, they'd pick me up, take me down, because, you know, it was at night. And um, and I started to bring people down the set. We started partying. <laughs> and the hotel was fabulous. I mean, I met Tom Selleck there, and Telly Savalas lived in that hotel with his entire family. It was a, it was a star-studded hotel at a star-studded time, you know, back in that era. It was just... Um, it was just a fabulous time. And, of course, I'm being paid a salary, and I'm being paid per diem while all this is going on. It really was a fabulous time. And I'm also um, moving around L.A. Uh, because my ex-wife, was Ann Geddes, the agent, um, who was still in Chicago at the time, but through her and a bunch of other people, I was meeting uh, a lot of Hollywood people, too, like Stephen J. Cannell. And I had started to do a few episodic things or, or meet people in L.A. for work. So it was a very fortunate time for me then. But, yeah, two-week job turned into almost four months and uh, and introduced me to Hollywood. 
what was it like working with these guys, especially working against Belushi and Aykroyd in one scene? You've, you're working against John Candy in another. What was that experience for you? That was incredible. And again, just a lot of fun. Firstly, I lived uh, in Chicago two blocks from Second City. So I knew John and I knew uh, Jim. We drank at the same bar, that whole Second City crowd. We drank at a little bar on North Avenue. Uh, so I kind of knew these guys. They didn't know who the hell I was, really. But I kind of knew them because, you know, we'd, we'd been in the same bars together and da-da-da. Landis, of course, was a big... He was like a child with a big toy. You got to remember, that movie was probably the most expensive movie shot during that time. I think the budget on that movie was $40 million or something, which was the most expensive film ever shot to that date coming out of Hollywood. And I also was in that theater world in Chicago by then. I had started doing some plays. People have asked me, who's your hero? Who impresses you? No one. <laughs> I was not enamored by the life. I was not enamored by the people. They were just regular folks to me. You know, I, I'll say something about that later on in terms of I finally figured out that I did have at least one hero uh, in the business. Um, I only say now, it was Sidney Poitier. When I thought about it, I go, my God, because I met the man. I met him also. Not on Blues Brothers, but I met him later in life, and he was magical. It, 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 to be in Poitier's presence was magical. You, you could actually feel him. That's how uh, spiritual or whatever the fuck that man has. But, but you could actually feel his presence all over you, man. And so anyway, so I wasn't impressed by anything. But these are a bunch of guys I'm working with. But what was so fabulous about that movie was so celebrity studded. I mean, James Brown and Aretha Franklin, and it was just fabulous to be around these folks. And then we'd get visitors in Chicago, particularly, that would come to set to visit the celebrities that were in the movie. Like Muhammad Ali used to come down to set a lot when we were in Chicago, you know? So that was exciting. And like I said, Landis was like a big child with a big toy. He just had all the energy in the world, you know, and it was just fun stuff to do. Just crazy shit to do. You know that whole car scene with all the police cars? The story I heard about that, have you heard the story about that? That don't, that was a brand new fleet of police cars that they destroyed. The story I heard was, Landis contracted with the city to take the old fleet. The city was getting a new fleet of cars, right? So Landis contracted with the city to use the old fleet as the new fleet came in. Somebody put the wrong, like, invoice number or something on a piece of paper that was, that, and he signed for, and Landis signed for the new fleet. When they found out the mistake, I heard Landis said, hey, too bad. <laughs> said, too bad, I'm going to use, you know, we already contract, I got a binding contract here for that fleet of cars, for that number, and so that's the ones I want. <laughs> they tore up <laughs> the city's brand new fleet of fucking cars. <laughs> I don't know how true that is, but that's the story I hear. Because if you look at those vehicles, those are all brand new vehicles. Those are beat up, yeah. It's, uh, it was insane, and he had a ball doing it. At a ball doing it. We had things like the, I think we shot in Robbins, Illinois, at that mall. 
as it turned out, that mall was completely empty. The That neighborhood was so bad that the residents had literally stolen all the merchants out of business. That merchants had just abandoned that mall. They just said, fuck this. This has just been going on for years. So we went in there, and, and of course, Universal restocked the mall with goodies. With the, it was the structural things were standing there. The buildings were there, you know, structurally. And they just went in and, you know, put up banners and signs and, and merchandise and, you know, da-da-da-da-da. Made it look like a mall again. And then, of course, we destroyed it, ran through it. So it was like interesting, interesting little little things like that that happened on the movie. I'll always remember, I forget the actor's name. I'll always remember one guy getting fired on the way to work his first day. We're all in a van. We got about 13 of us in a van traveling out to set. And Landis was in the van with us. And this one guy lights up a cigarette. And those were the days when, you know, the smoking was cool everywhere, you know. But but Landon said, "Hey man, we got thirteen guys in this packed van. You know, I appreciate it if you put the cigarette out." Guy goes, "Hey man, I'll smoke if I want to." I said, "Come on, man. There's some of these people in here, you know, don't dig smoke, got asthma, da da. You know, fuck you, man. I'm gonna smoke like." <laughs> and so Landis looked at him and said, "Okay, cool, you can smoke. But where are you gonna work at tomorrow?" The guy didn't know who John was. The guy had not met the director and didn't know who John was. <laughs> so John fired his ass before he even got to set. <laughs> fired his ass right there on the van, right there on the little bus. That was a valuable lesson to me also. Yeah, because you know John, you know how John looked. John was all scruffy, had his little beard and was scruffy back then. But the valuable lesson was on a movie set, politeness. Be kind, be polite to everybody because you never know. The motherfucker that's getting your coffee one day, and we've actually had that happen. I actually had that happen on, on other shows, like L.A. Heat. You know, the guy who was my gopher the first season was the head writer the second season. I learned a valuable lesson on that on that van that morning about being polite to everybody that's working with you because you don't know who they are. And when you do know who they are, you don't know who they're going to become. So don't burn them bridges. And, and a movie set is one of the most polite places on the planet in terms of uh, my experience. Because if you've ever been to a movie set, you'll notice everybody says, yes, sir, and no, sir. And, hey, thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. Everybody's very polite and because uh, we got a job to do. It's a, it's a team effort, and it's one hell of a job. That final product on that screen, whether it be television or movies, is one hell of an endeavor that was put together. Especially now with all the modern technology and all this shit, you know, it's really incredible stuff that goes on to get that product. Yeah, so, you know, and Candy, John Candy was fabulous. Everybody, again, everybody was regular. Again, back, and back especially during the time in Hollywood, where everybody was just loose. Those were very loose days, too. You gotta remember what year that was and what era that was. It was a very wild time. You know, the partying, the sex, the cocaine, the drugs, the booze, it was just an incredible time. And everybody, the band, those boys in the band, everybody, we all was at the, you know, the hotel and we had a ball. And it was just people, it was like a big party. It was a big party. Maybe I should have been, uh, but again, I was too naive to be impressed. These were just regular folks to me. But I'm sure you were impressed when Muhammad Ali comes down to the set. Oh, yeah. He's another one of those people whose presence is an incredible presence. Yeah, so him visiting the set was, was cool in the game. Did you actually get to interact with, like, Aretha or, or Rachel's or any of these guys? 
No, I didn't get to interact with any of them, with Aretha or Ray or James. I didn't get to interact with them, but it was just cool to know that they were around. So was it pretty natural after you were done to just be like, yep, I'm out here, I'm staying now, you had enough work lined up that you were able to support yourself? For the next year, after we finished, we finally got the scene done and finished up, and I went back to Chicago, and I was going back and forth. This was probably 1980. 1980 to 81, I was going back and forth, Chicago to L.A. I was actually working, starting to work some jobs in L.A. Uh, Stephen kept me uh, pretty busy. And then in 82, I decided, wow, you know, I've done two or three jobs in L.A. Why don't I just move to L.A.? A couple of my friends had already moved uh, from Chicago, and they were living in L.A. So I moved out to L.A. and, you know, shacked up with a few friends and started my, my work history. In, in 1982 here, I packed up all my stuff in Chicago and and made the permanent move to Los Angeles, to Los Angeles, and now I've, and I've been here ever since. I just did an episode on Better Off Dead, and you have probably the best laugh line in the entire movie. Did you even shoot for like half a day for that? Yeah, I think I shot the whole day. Again, that was a time when my ex-wife, Ann Geddes, was representing... The entire Cusack family, John and uh, Joan and, and the dad, Dick Cusack, uh, she represented all of these uh, people. And uh, John lived with us for a while. He lived with uh, my ex-wife and I for a while when he was in L.A. And it was one of those things where they uh, asked me to do that little cameo in the Cusack movie because they knew the relationship between me and John and, and you know, my wife and the family. And they asked me to, to do this cameo, and it was great. <laughs> it was just great. I think I did a day on it, you know. And you know, one thing like that takes a day. You show up, you got to go through makeup and hair and blah, 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 and they finally get around to the scene, climb up a tree and uh, say the line, and get your money and go home. <laughs> it has always been kind of my philosophy. If it's got a check at the end of it, let's talk about it. <laughs> but it was such a great line. And Steve, I think I think Steve Holland, the Steve Savage director, yeah, he was he was a fun guy. Also, I remember the director being a fun man. When did you, or did you ever feel that you were secure and that you were gonna like now be an actor for sure, forever, kind of thing? Like, because I mean, you bounced around a lot. I mean, was it once you finally got something like an Equalizer or Twenty One Jump Street? It was actually from day one. I was that naive. I didn't know any better. So I was that naive. I mean, I've never, since I started acting, I never had another job. I was always able to make a living as an actor. I am one of the most blessed people on the planet, Mike. That's how I look at it. And I was so naive that I wasn't concerned. I mean, I didn't look forward at all. And, and today, even today, I don't look forward at all. This is why I say, I use the words, my job history. I never use the words my career. I don't have a career. Denzel has a career. Uh, uh, Tom Cruise has a career. Uh, Brad Pitt has a career. You know what I'm saying? I have a job history. That's how I've always looked at it. I'm, I've never reached for the brass ring. I don't give a shit about an Oscar or an Emmy or a da-da-da. I'm a blue-collar kind of guy. That's my attitude in life. And it's always just been a job. But I was always confident that process that I had to go through in order to 
get that particular job, I was always confident enough to know that I was going to work. I mean, if I got an audition, I was cocky enough to figure it was automatic for me. And nine times out of ten, it worked out. I got the job. And then, of course, when Jump Street came along, that was just incredible. I'm now on a series. Now it's a long-term job. And that was fabulous. But yeah, I just it's just always been, again, something to do. I, I'm having, it's better than working, man. <laughs> I've had nothing but fun, nothing but a good time. And there has never, ever been a struggle. I'm amazingly blessed. It's cool. And anyway, to, even today to now, people look at me and go, damn, nigga, you still working. Folks that, that go way back. I mean, how many actors have gone back to, you know, and I started late. You got to think about this. I mean, even modeling, I was 20, what, seven or something, 26 or something. When I started modeling, that is even late. Like most, especially in, in the female world. I mean, these females are starting at 15 and 16. They become supermodels. But at 20-something, and, and past my mid-20s, I start modeling. Now, that's late. Now, so at 27 or so, 27, 28, I don't know, I started acting. That's late to start. Most people who want acting as a career start much earlier. But I've been working ever since at near, near 75 years old. Um, I'll be 75 in a couple of months. I'm still working. And there are not a lot of actors, journeymen uh, actors, who are doing that. I mean, there's a handful that are, you know, constantly working into their old age. But it's one of those careers or one of those jobs that you can work until you die. Then you can play a dead body. Yeah, you've been in the business for so long. I'm sure you've seen so many changes. You're talking about working with technology. And I know there were some special effects in Blues Brothers, like when the cars are flying and things like that. But, you know, this is way before green screen and uh, and the, the you yeah. know working on virtual sets i mean i'm sure working on something like a you know supernatural or something you're just like oh yeah and then there's going to be a demon flying through here those were the closest i got to, i asked john and he let me uh because i'm a car enthusiast right and at one point there's that chase uh we did chicago country club um high park country club you do what it was called where she's where Carrie Fisher is, uh, yeah, chasing him and they take off and then they go to the country club. There's a big car chase through the country club. And I, I said, John, can I ride in the back seat of, of one of these cars? And he did. He let me. And I was in the back seat of one of those automobiles as they did this wild ass ride, this chase with bumps and little jumps and stuff. I'm down, you know, uh, on the floor in the back seat feeling all of this and watching it out the window as much as I could see. So that was exciting to me. That was probably the most exciting thing that I did in that movie was to ride that uh, that automobile stuck in the back seat, unseen. It was fun for me. Yeah. I just liked wild shit. Like, it was almost like a demolition derby. You've been in so many things over the years. What have been some of your favorites to do or, like, the most fun for you? One of my most fun was, was of course, 21 Jump Street. I loved playing Captain Fuller. It was one of the first shows where the, the African-American guy... Now, think about this. Back in the day, if you watch all these television shows, uh, Starsky and Hutch and Hunter, and they always had an ethnic captain. 
The captain was always an ethnic gap, but most likely black. And the two stars, of course, never paid attention to the motherfucker. They always ran roughshod over the captain. They would always do something opposite that the captain, you know, didn't want to, we don't care, and da 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 And the captain was always that angry, chewing him out kind of guy. Well, Jump Street was a show where I think my character sort of changed that. You knew that Captain Fuller was the boss and in charge. So he sort of became the boss, and he was sort of a mentor because these were very young cops. So he became a father figure also. So I love that. The only other guy that did that was uh, James Edward Olmos in Miami Vice. He was so strong as a, as a, as a captain in the boss. Remember, he used to turn his back on the camera. He used to do a lot of his lines with his back to the camera. I thought, man, that's power. But I, I love Jump Street. I love playing that character. And, of course, I love the location. Vancouver, British Columbia was just a fabulous place to be. And, you know, it's a five-year series, so, of course, I love that. Uh, Mr. X, I loved the hell out of playing X. Because I didn't know. I was confused about what to do with that character. I thought, ambiguity. I'll just be as ambiguous as I can. But I'll just deliver that. Nobody ever knew who he worked for. Nobody, I was so mad when they, when they killed him off so early. It, it was such a rich character. There was so much more to learn about him. That you never learn. Like, who the fuck was X? So I loved playing that that kind of uh, mystery character. And I did a one short-lived show. We only went two seasons. A show called L.A. Heat. Uh, it was foreign first run. So I think it only did one season here in America. They sold it into television just for one season here. The producers didn't really know how to handle that whole TV thing. Joseph Merhi and Richard Pepin. PM Entertainment. They were doing a lot of um, uh, what we call B-movies, straight to video, with, with John claude Van Damme and Dolph Lundgren and all these action things that they used to do. Uh, but, but they, we, so we did this series for two seasons, me and an actor named uh, Wolf Larson. And that was probably the most fun for me because we got to be too macho action. I mean, we were better than Lethal Weapon. Didn't that's that's, that was our joke. That we're better than fucking Mel Gibson and Danny Glover. Watch us. <laughs> yeah. We had so much fun doing that show. As we got to do a lot of our own stunts. And that was, you know, a very macho thing for the both of us. And uh, we were two guys. We were sort of in competition when we had to run away from an explosion or something. You know, we were always trying to see who the, who the fastest was or who could jump the highest over a fence or, you know, who could do the most donuts in a car. or We just had an absolute ball. Um, my body is, is fucking ruined to this day because of a lot of things I did in that show. But, yeah, those three roles, you know, uh, uh, Captain Fuller and, and Mr. X and uh, August Brooks, Detective August Brooks was the guy's name in L.A. Heat. And I've had, I've had fun with these things, even Supernatural. You know, Rufus was a lot of fun. You know, working with Bobby um, Singer with, uh, but those guys and that whole crew. And again, that was shot in Vancouver. So, you know, it was uh, so comfortable. Just a lot of fun, you know, to play Rufus. Uh, it's just almost everything I've done is fun. I don't, you know, just, I, I, I can think of something fabulous about each character as opposed to one standing out of one being my absolute favorite. They all were my favorites in a sense. And there was always something about, each one of them that uh, that was particularly outstanding that I liked. Mr. Williams, thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful. I love talking. I love, I love interviews. What the hell? If you're a good writer with a good imagination, 
there's always, I, I'm always made to look good and a little bit amusing. Of every interview, every article I've ever read about myself, it's always been, I thank you guys for being kind to me. And if you think of anything else, Mike, that you'd like to talk about, feel free, man. But do not hesitate to call. You have that invitation. Last but not least, here is an interview with John Landis, all about his work on the Blues Brothers. I'm very curious how you got involved with the Blues Brothers, and I'm especially curious about that early draft that uh, Ackroyd wrote. The uh, what is it, 354 pages? Is what I hear. Yes, I'm so it was huge. So curious um, what that was like. Well, it was wild. It was it was uh, every member of the band had his own movie, basically. You know, they they went to get each member of the band. Well, the Blues Brothers. You know, Danny has a lifelong love of blues, and he up, believe it or not, up in Kingston, Canada, Ontario. He he saw all the great blues acts. There was a little blues club. And he really did see, you know, everyone from Muddy Waters and Howling Wolf to, I mean, you name it. And he was a serious blues fan when he was a teenager and always loved the blues. John was much more into, at the time, heavy metal and later punk and stuff. But he also, once he got into it, he started loving rhythm and blues and really enjoyed it. They both, I mean, Danny's a real academic almost. I mean, he really is deeply steeped in the music and the culture. By the way, it is not a Saturday Night Live sketch. They always say it came out of a Saturday Night Live sketch. You'll notice that neither Lorne Michaels nor NBC or Paramount have any rights or anything in the Blues Brothers. That is because it was created to act, the guys. I mean, John and Danny did that on their own for fun. Uh, really before Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live was an amalgamation. I mean, Lorne chose well, but he cherry-picked performers who were either from Second City or a couple from the Groundlings, but mostly from Second City and National Lampoon. I mean, the National Lampoon Radio Hour, which John produced, the cast was like Bill Murray... Gilda Radner, Harold Ramis, Brian Doyle Murray, oh, Christopher Guest. <laughs> you know, these guys, they, you know, Lauren was able to really cherry pick extraordinary performers, many of whom, I mean, you know, Chevy and uh, Chris and John were in Lemmings, the National Lampoon show off Broadway, which was a big hit. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, they, they were all young performers and John got into Second City in Chicago and Danny got into Second City in Toronto. 
Um, and Gilda was second city in Toronto. Harold Ramis in Chicago. And then, you know, second city, they, John, the first time he went to Toronto, I think, was to teach at second city or something. This is long before Saturday Night Live. And he and Danny, when not long, but two years maybe, but still before he and Danny really had a just hit it off. They were like brothers. They really were close, close, close friends, and they shared a very particular world view and sense of humor and love of music. And they used to perform, they made up these guys, Jake and Elwood, and they used to perform as Jake and Elwood in uh, Toronto. And they performed with uh, Delbert McClinton's band and once with Willie Nelson's band. And, you know, it was never, it was always just sort of a goof, like something for fun. And then I was hired by Universal. I'm not involved in any of that stuff, and I'm hired by Universal to supervise a rewrite, maybe direct Animal House. So in the casting of Animal House, since the writers were from the Lampoon, two of them, Harold and Doug, you know, they knew John and Chevy, you know, they knew all those guys because they all worked together. And so when the script was written, they had John Belushi in mind for Bluto and they had Dan Aykroyd in mind for D-Day. Harold wanted to play Boone, which I didn't let him, and he was very mad at me. Um, in any case, they wrote Otter for Chevy Chase before Saturday Night Live. Now, meanwhile, here comes Saturday Night Live, and the script of Animal House is now at Universal, and now they're, you know, want to make it, and I'm going to direct it, and Ivan and Maddie are producing it, and I worked with Harold, Doug, and Chris on the script, and my main contribution to the screenplay was the the script that I read that I was given was still probably the funniest thing I've ever. I mean, it made me laugh out loud. You know, it was really funny, but it was also offensive. And, you know, and that everyone in it was a pig. And you know, it. I just felt, hey, you know, some. Everyone can't be a jerk in this. I, you have to have good guys and bad guys. It's a basic tenant of stories. You know? I mean, we should have a good a fraternity we like and a fraternity we don't like. You know, and so it's their script, but I did influence them tremendously, and I did cut out or change stuff that I think you know has been done since. But I thought it was too much at the time. Also, like the Lampoon, it was. Racist. It was anti-Semitic. It was misogynist in some ways too much. And in any case, the, the bottom line is so I was given orders that I must get Chevy Chase and John Belushi to be in the movie because the TV show of Saturday Night Live was such a big deal. So I went to New York to meet with John, and then Danny was in Toronto. So I flew up to Toronto, and while I was there, John came up, and they did Jake and Elwood with Delbert McClinton's band. And I said, what the, what the fuck is this? And they got very excited, and they started telling me that, you know, it's, it's these characters, and they're working on them, you know, and that I mean, they had basic a uniform, which was a hat. Any hat, any dark glasses, and any dark suit. You know, it was my wife, the costume designer, Deborah, who, who made it, you know, who actually came up with the real silhouette. But before that, it was, you know, forming. It was just a goof that they did. And then 
they said, hey, let's perform with Jake and Elwood on, on the TV show. And Lauren hated it. You know, he said, no, I'm not going to know you guys, you know, and the band at that time, actually, you know, who called, who came up with the name, the blues brothers. I heard it was Howard Shore. Exactly. Who was in Toronto at the time. And he said, you should call yourselves the blues brothers. So that's around the time I first heard of them. And I, you know, said, you know, there's a movie in these guys, and they got real excited. In any case, John agreed to be in Animal House. Danny, for whatever reasons, uh, didn't. He told me, I always thought that Lauren kept him out, but several years ago, Danny told me that wasn't true. And because Chevy and John were leaving the series to do movies, he felt out of loyalty he should stay at least another year. I don't know why, but he wasn't in Animal House. And I didn't want Chevy. <laughs> I did everything I could to sabotage that. Not because I don't think Chevy's untalented, just that, you know, I felt very strong. Never mind. doesn't matter. We're not talking about Animal House. The point is that that's the first time that the Blues Brothers was talked about between the three of us. And then as an inducement to try to convince Danny and John to do the movie, we made... Uh, Universal made what's called a, a development deal for the Blues Brothers movie. But there was no Blues Brothers movie. There, there was nothing, you know. And then what happened was they used to warm up the house before the sh taping. And finally, Lauren let them be on, but they were, he made them wear bumblebee outfits. John was furious. And you have to remember the band at that time, was it Paul Schaefer? I think it was Paul leading the band. I'm not sure, but the band, the Saturday Night Live band, well, that's the three Blues Brothers horns right there. You know, Marini and... Uh, anyway, the, what happened was Carrie Fisher and Danny were dating. In fact, during the movie, they were engaged, you know, but they were dating and Carrie was hosting. And she said to Lauren, I want the Blues Brothers to perform on the show. So that made John and Danny take it seriously. The Universal had no intention of doing anything with this thing, you know. And they took it seriously, and they put together with Bob Tischler and Paul Shaver and all these guys put a band together, and uh, they made an album called Briefcase Full of Blues, Atlantic Rec. And that album was really... It's kind of amazing, but it was kind of like a novelty record or something, but it became a gigantic success. I mean, a gigantic success um, went like double platinum or something. So now Steve Martin, oh, that was briefcase full of blues. I should tell you, I mean, the, the way that happened was Steve Martin was going to perform at the Universal Amphitheater in Los Angeles, which no longer exists, but he was going to perform. And he said to John and Danny, hey, you guys want to be my opening act. At that moment, it became real. And John and Danny were saying, you know, this is like a we could do a real, you know, we could. And they got super serious and they started to put a band together. John really was instrumental. I mean, Steve Cropper and Duck Dunn and then Matt Guitar Murphy. I mean, unbelievable group of musicians. They're just astonishing, you know. Um, and they got this band together. They started to rehearse and they rehearsed and they did. It was, my, it was the day of my wedding. 
So it was the night of my wedding. It was very funny. I mean, you know, anyway, we all went to the show. It was a huge sensation. And a guy, you know, in the movie when they perform at the big play, whatever that club is, the Palace Hotel Ballroom. Palace Hotel Ballroom, right? They're approached by this big guy backstage, and Danny says, "Oh my God, the mafia is after us!" And he says, "No, I'm, you know." somebody from somebody records and I want to record you. And he gives them the money. He's passed away now, but the guy who's in the movie playing the guy, the reason he can't act is his name is Michael Kleffner. And he was an A&R guy for Atlantic records. And he's the one who came to them and said, he happened to be at a rehearsal and he went, fuck it. You guys are good. <laughs> I mean, these musicians are incredible. Is that Steve Cropper? You know, he couldn't believe it. And so he really said, can I record your show? And the live recording of the opening night of the Steve Martin thing, that's Briefcase Full of Blues. And that album, to everyone's surprise, became a ginormous hit. In fact, at the time, I think it was the biggest selling blues album of all time, which is truly insane. And it was huge. And at that moment, Animal House was the number one movie in the world. And, and basically, Universal went, wait a minute, we have, the right, we have the option, we have the rights to make a movie of the Blues Brothers. And the Blues Brothers have the number one album in the country. John is the star of the number one movie in the world. And Danny and John are the stars of the number one TV show. Let's make the movie. <laughs> and so it, it sort of like, what? It came together in a way that like none of us were prepared for, really. So John and Danny at that time were now shooting 1941. And so Universal said, we'd like to make the movie. So I had a meeting with John and Danny, and I said, hey, you guys, we have to write a script. And John says, well, Danny will write the script. And Danny says, yeah, I'll write the script. And I said, well, okay, here's our problem. Because the studio said we had to have the movie in theaters in August. And I think that gave us nine months. And there was no script. So Danny, we bullshit a bunch of ideas. And then Danny suddenly became, other than acting in that movie, he disappeared. Like you couldn't reach him. He was in L.A. working. And you got to remember, Danny's never written a script before. <laughs> like, you know, one of the reasons it's, the script was so long is that it's like a novel. I mean, he wrote all the action out in huge detail. And so anyway, he, he actually he threw it over the fence of Bob Weiss, the producer, and it was in a San Fernando Valley phone book cover. And on the title page, it says the Blues Brothers or the something, some title, the, I forgot what it was called, the Legend or something of the Blues Brothers, the Turn of Blues. And, and it was written by Scriptatron 9000. So I get a call from the producer saying, John, I'm making a copy of this. I don't know what we're going to do. <laughs> and the studio just went, ah, and it's a long story, but basically... It was a very interesting, uh, Danny has really unique and kind of amazingly original ideas. What the fuck? You know, they're really wild. And he, 
I mean, for instance, you know, Ghostbusters is his. And you got to realize that that's got that whatever it is, that ambulance, you know, the the hearse. And that we have the blues mobile. I mean, they wear uniforms. We wear uniforms. I mean, it's like, you know, Danny's got a very, he's called a motorhead. And he, in real life, Dan is a biker, you know. And I mean, his Danny's idea of a good time is driving from Toronto to Los Angeles to New York in three days. You know, he's just a motorhead. He loves to be in the car driving loud music. In any case, it was clear that if we were going to make this movie, we'd have to alter the screenplay. <laughs> but the sto- the movie I've made is essentially Danny's vision. I cut the script down tremendous. I mean, by hundreds of pages. <laughs> and then I also created stuff to make it more linear. Then I gave my version of his script to Dan. Then Danny rewrote my version and gave it to me. And then I I revised his version of my version. <laughs> and what you get is this insane movie. I mean, a classic piece of the way we work together is that, like, Danny wrote the line, it's 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. And then John says, hit it. So I added half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark and we're wearing sunglasses. And John said, hit it. You know, that was like, and then the whole thing about a mission from God, that was, I put that in because Danny was completely evangelical about this African-American music, this rhythm and blues, this, this uniquely American black music that birthed rock and roll. And he you got to remember, when we made the movies in 1979, most of the rhythm and blues artists, I mean, even Motown wasn't selling. I mean, nothing. I mean, it was all disco. And the biggest records, the biggest acts in the world were ABBA and the Bee Gees and the Village People. Very white. Now, Rogers, even the black acts were like doing, you know, freak out. You know, it was all disco. And so, like, we had this little thing taped to the cameras, a death to disco. But it was the idea of doing a movie featuring classic rhythm and blues artists and music. It's hard to explain to people now how insane that was. And it was just really a moment in time where because of our combined recent success at that moment, you know, Animal House, Saturday Night Live, and, and the Blues, but, you know, we just, we were in production. <laughs> I've had the unique experience of making two movies, one at Paramount, one at Universal, where the studio says to me, can you have this picture in theaters in August? And in both cases, it was Coming to America, the Blues Brothers, in both cases, there was no script. And we immediately go into production. So what that means is there, you know, no, we're not arguing about the budget. We're spending money. <laughs> you know, so on coming on coming to America, I don't know that I don't know anyone else that's happened to. But what that means, it's both a blessing and a curse. Because uh, on the Blues Brothers, it meant. You know, there was this moment in time, 79, 80, when Hollywood was making five movies that cost more than $24 million, which was an enormous number. 
$24 million was the number that Cleopatra cost. And Cleopatra almost bankrupted Fox. That's why they had to sell back live, you know, Century City and stuff. So suddenly it was Heaven's Gate, 1941, Apocalypse Now, gosh, what were the other? Oh, Star Trek and the Blues Brothers. Those five movies all cost more than $24 million. So the story was the press, which is not to be trusted, but the story was Hollywood out of control. And what the studios immediately did was say, it's the directors, they're berserk, they're causing all this trouble, we can't control them. Now, interestingly enough, in, in, one, in two cases, that might be true, but... It was really, it was the thing, you know, now $24 million is a low-budget movie. But what's so interesting is that with John at the time, we were so attacked for being, you know, we were 27, it ended up costing. That includes, by the way, a 25% studio overhead, where the studio puts money from one pocket and the other, you know. He he said, hey, that's cheaper than a, a B-52 bomber, you <laughs> know. You know, ironically, four of those five movies ended up making a fortune, making big money. You know, Apocalypse Now. But if you read the press at the time, the contemporary reporting, it's not very flattering. And even Star Trek. I mean, that's Robert Wise, for Christ's sake. I mean, that's the opposite of an irresponsible director, you know. In any case, so we were shooting away. In our case, it caused all this chaos because we were these long hairs and everyone thought we were crazy. I mean, I mean to give you the idea of how outre this was, and I think some of it's true. I mean, we were drunk with power, I guess, you know, because what, what's the most important part of an actor on screen? Usually their eyes. Their eyes. So I said, we're going to put them in dark glasses. We're never going to see their eyes. And finally, um, then Dan and that production said, John, promise me you'll see their eyes once, you know. So you saw John's eyes when he, you know, apologized to Carrie. And then he, uh, or pleaded, rather. And you see Danny's eyes once when he quits his job, which was cut out of the movie, although it's back. Have you seen the, the one with the 15 minutes back in it? I actually think that's better than the movie is released. And that's a whole other story. Um, in any case, what happened was, just a story I was going to tell you, is that Ned Tannen was besieged with bad press. So he blurted out, listen, the movie's $11 million. That's the budget we gave them, which was a complete lie. You know, we never. And I'm in Chicago. We're shooting some huge scene. And uh, Bob Weiss, the producer, comes up to me and shows me Variety. And I read the article and I go, $11 million? And Bob says, yeah, you're right. I think we've spent $11 million. <laughs> it was like, uh-oh. But anyway, we made the movie. Of the artist in the movie, the only artist who's in the movie who was actually doing well at that time was Ray Charles. And I don't know if you remember, but that was when Ray was doing Country Western. But Aretha and, and you know, James Brown, everybody else, it wasn't popular. Danny was adamant about, it's kind of a unique situation. I mean, us, people taking advantage of their own celebrity to shine a light on these fantastic performers, you know. You know, now with political correctness and stuff, I read some 
British article about uh, the Blues Brothers, and they were looking at it through this new enlightened perspective, and they were saying how how it was cultural appropriation that the band was corporal. And I I wanted to say, excuse me, you see the tall guy with the beard? That's Steve Cropper, and that's Duck Dunn, and Willie Hall, the drummer. They were the backbone of Stax Records. They are the MGs of Booker T and the MGs. In fact, Steve Cropper wrote half the music we're singing. And, you know, it was like, how do you, how do you culturally appropriate the artist who did it? <laughs> you know? But anyway, um, you know, it was it, it it's a strange movie, and we really were given like you know. We were out of control. I mean, we weren't. I mean, the movie certainly, you know, we made the movie. And with all those extraordinary chases and there were no speeded up film, most cars are going 130 miles an hour, you know, 35 cars. I mean, to, to pull that off is like a military operation. We had to have both cops and PAs at every entrance to the street for some of those shots in in Chicago where the, you see the cop cars chasing the bluesmobile where there's 40 vehicles going 130 miles an hour we had to clear the street for uh, almost a mile and a half so that no one could possibly you know enter the street when that was going on i mean they were huge operations and uh, all went off without a hitch there's a shot after all those cop cars crash at that intersection. Yeah. You're back a little ways, and there are all the cop cars that are coming that don't crash. But it just looks right. like you have hundreds of cars. How many cars did you have at a time well, going? We, you have to remember, there were several kinds of cars. There were the cars we had, and I forgot what they're called, but they were the typical cop cars. And we used those cars for Chicago police for uh, Illinois State Troopers and the Lake Wazapamani police, which are fictional. We use the same cars and just change the Mars bars and the decals. Uh, So that was one thing. Another thing was when you saw a hundred, you know, looked like millions of Chicago cop cars. Well, it was because half of them were real. They they never got close to like a stunt. But we had a 24-hour Bondo shop, you know, what's it called? Garage going. And those cars were indestructible because they took those Chryslers and they put roll bars in them. And, you know, I mean, and by the end of the movie, basically, they were just made of Bondo because they were constantly being repaired and repainted and body work done and you know, it was uh, it was a big operation. I mean, for instance, it was nuts. I mean, I had this idea, this cartoon gag where, where the Nazis go off the end of the freeway. And so we actually dropped a Pinto. We picked it up by a, with a Sigorsky helicopter. There's making of stuff on the Blu-ray that you can see us doing it. But we, we pick it up and we drop. We, you know, we were 1,400 feet above Chicago. And let it go. In fact, my and I have two favorite shots in the movie. One is when you're watching the Pinto falling, and suddenly the Sears Tower enters frame from the bottom. You know? 
I mean, that's how fucking high that thing was. And to do that shot, we had to prove to the FAA, the city of Chicago, and the Cook County Board of Commissioners that the car would land where we said it would, that it was aerodynamically sound. So we dropped two cars in a cornfield to prove we could do it. Now, of course, when you do that, the car is completely destroyed. It's it becomes like you know a foot high, you know, and uh, so that's two Pintos gone. Then we drove two or three Pintos off the edge of that freeway. Gone, goodbye. Those cars are gone, destroyed. Then we cut a Pinto in half to put uh, Henry and the other guy in for the gag, you know, the blue screen gag. Where he says, I always loved. So we destroyed about 10 Pintos, I think. And the really crazy thing is, you know, movie studios, which don't exist anymore, but in the old days, everything was recycled, whatever they could, wardrobe, props, cars. And for like two years after, after the Blues Brothers, the security at Universal was driving around in red Pintos with white power bumper sticker. I wanted to ask you about the musicians that are in the film, because you've got the musicians who are the Blues Brothers band. You've also got the other musicians who are like making these appearances. How is it directing all of these musicians, these non-trained actors? Well, <laughs> you can see in the movie, some of them come off well and some of them don't. <laughs> you do the best you can. Now, you know, I mean, uh, directing actors, all actors are different, even really, you know, wonderful actors. Many are just louder, funnier, softer, <laughs> you know, turn left instead of right. Many of them, you hardly have to do anything. Others, you have to really discuss it about motivation. And, you know, it, it's whatever, to, whatever it takes to get this person to give you the moment. All you want is that moment on film. If you have that moment, then you can cut. And with another moment, you can create, you can do a lot in cutting, you know, if you know how to do it. I mean, there are all these tricks to do with people who can't act at all. But the bottom line is, everyone was enthusiastic and, uh, I made a movie called Into the Night, and I asked my friend David Cronenberg to act in it. And he said, okay. So he's acting in it. He's actually very good. And and since then, I might add, he's become a working actor. He's been in a lot of movies. And But that was the first one, and he was in it. And he said, I'm doing it to see what the experience is like, you know, to see if I gain sympathy for the actor. So we, we shoot the day, and at the end of it, I said, so David, what what do you think? He said, I had no idea how terrifying it was. I mean, all that energy and all those people and everything is focused on you, and you have to deliver that line or that action. You, I mean, it's like, oh, my God, it's terrifying. And I said, so are you more sympathetic to actors now? David said, no, fuck them. They're crazy. But anyway, it, you know, that's just fun for me that, you know, the fact that I used a lot of directors is just fun for me. It's, it's not, a, there's no profound meaning to it. 
Frank Oz almost steals the show in his just his tiny He's scene. Wonderful. Frank's a wonderful actor. Did you see him in uh, what's that movie? Knives Out. Oh yeah, yeah. I was so happy when he showed up. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> he was so good. But Frank uh, had never acted. I mean, he was a brilliant puppeteer, and of course, that is performance. I mean, you know, I, I was talking. Who was that? I was, it was Jim and Frank one day, and we're talking, and and I I made something remark about singing. And both of them, you know, immediately poo-pooed and said, we're not singers, you know. And I said, excuse me, I've seen both of you sing with Ethel Merman and, you know, Linda Ronstadt and, you know, Tony Bennett. And, you know, you list the people that they performed with. It's unbelievable. But they never think of the puppets as them, even though they're doing the voice and the motion. How did Joe Walsh end up in the film? Joe was a friend of John's. And he was on the set one day. He used to watch us when we were in L.A., hang out. And I said to him, hey, you want to be in the movie? And he went, what do I do? I said, be a prisoner and jump on the table and start the dance. Yeah! <laughs> so that's how he's in the movie. Tell me about that longer version. How did you manage to get the longer version? And, and Well, what happened, it's a strange story and not a happy one, but the Blues Brothers was intended to be a road show which meant it had, a, had an intermission, you know, and be shown in 70 millimeter. I mean, the movies, I just supervised a, a 4K transfer of an up-res of the movie that's coming out. It's coming out soon. I did Animal House and and the, the Blues Brothers, you know, Paramount. They just released uh, um, Coming to America. It's a remarkable thing, this new 4K stuff. If you can get the filmmakers involved, you can really control the image in a way and get the color. And you have real blacks, you know, on high def TVs, you, you have, they're not TVs, they're computers, but you, you have high def 4K. Black is black. It's unbelievable. And the colors, the vibrancy, and it's just, it's amazing what you can get out of the frame. It still looks like film, you know, but it's gorgeous. I mean, the Blues Brothers is very well shot by Steve Katz. So anyway, what happened was, was so we made one seven. First, I did my cut, and it was about uh, twenty minutes too long, so I cut that out. Then I, I finished what I think is finished. I make an answer print. We cut negative, we mix, and I make an answer print. We make one seventy millimeter print, and we preview it at the Pickwood Theater which is no longer there, on Pico Boulevard in West L.A., next to the bowling alley, which is also no longer there. Uh, it was a wonderful old Fox Theater, beautiful theater. So we, we screened it at sneak preview, and based on that, I cut about 15 minutes out of it. Then the movie's finished. It has an intermission. Everything's fine. And at that that time, you have what's called I mean, the business, at the moment, the motion picture industry is in complete chaos. And theatrical exhibition, it's a very scary moment because um, the theaters can't afford to keep their theaters open. You know, it's very complicated. Um, and you heard Warner Brothers is releasing Wonder Woman, all their movies directly to HBO. I mean, it's a very, for filmmakers, it's quite a terrifying moment, <laughs> but... 
in any case, so the Blues Brothers was gorgeous, sounded great, and everything was good. And I cut to 15 minutes, I'll finish it. Then the studio sends prints out to the exhibitor screenings around the country. At that time, it became different, but then the exhibitors had a lot of power because they decided whether or not they were going to run your picture. And the reaction that we totally didn't expect in 1980, I mean, it, it really threw us for a loop, was they said, no white people are going to see this movie. And I went, what? <laughs> you know, like, no white people will see this movie. Plus, by the way, the Blues Brothers, having already had a double platinum album, Universal, Decca Records, and MCA Records, which are all Universal, refused to release the soundtrack album, which is why it's on Atlantic. And by the way, that went triple platinum. And even Ahmet Erdogan, who's a great man, wouldn't put John Hooker on the album. And when I asked why, I was told, John, he's too, too old and too black. And it was just a commercial decision, you know. Luckily, it was a huge success. But the bottom line is the unexpected racist reaction to the movie threw us for a loop. And I was called into Mr. Wasserman's office, Lou Wasserman, who was the chairman of the – that was like being called to the principal's office. It was like, oh, you know. And Lou had an office at the top of what was called the Black Tower or the Death Star. You know, I go up to the Black Tower and I go up to Lou's office. Mr. Wasserman's office, and he lets me in, and he says, uh, John, do you know Ted Mann, M-A-N-N? John, do you know Ted Mann? And there was a, a distinguished-looking guy sitting there. I later learned he was head of Reagan's kitchen cabinet. <laughs> but Ted Mann owned Mann Theaters, and Mann Theaters had bought the Fox Theaters. So a lot of them were still called Fox, but they were Mann Theaters. And in Los Angeles... At that time, the best movie houses were in Westwood Village, the Fox and the Bruin. They're both still there. And the National. The National was torn down. But the Fox, in fact, Ted Mann owned those theaters. He also owned Grauman's Chinese. He owned a lot of the most important theaters in Southern California. And Lou says, Ted, tell Mr. Landis what you told me. I, I was standing. I mean, I didn't even sit here. And Ted Mann turned to me and he said, well, John, I'm not going to book your picture into Westwood. And I I was really like, what? You know, I mean, Animal House had just played a year at the Bruin, you know. So I said, why not? And he said totally affably, I don't want blacks in Westwood. And I was speechless, you know. So later Lou takes me aside and says, John, we're having trouble booking your picture because they think uh, no white people will see it. And I said, Lou, do you think that? He said, well, John, I don't know. But they're not going to book at Roadshow. So I want you to cut another 20 to 30 minutes out of it. And that way we'll get rid of the intermission and they can have an extra showing a day. And that wasn't a request or a suggestion. <laughs> you know? So you've got to realize this is finished footage. This is not like work print. This is a finished movie. So at that point, I just panicked. And, and with my editor, we just made big lifts, big lifts. And to this day, I 
don't understand why we did some of them. <laughs> but we made big lifts, and that's what was released. Now, an average release of a major movie at that time was like 2,000 theaters. You know, I think we were in 600. But the good news is people showed up, and it was a big hit. Um, and therefore, it went spread. You know, As soon as people see something making money, then they book the movie. But it was a very strange thing. So that, okay. So what happened was I was never happy with the finished movie because for me, it's lopsided. It was designed to have a certain rhythm and build and do that. And it was just cut up, you know, by me, by the way. I can't point fingers. You know, I did it. But so anyway, not that long ago, at the most 10 years, but I don't know when it was, but it was. The FBI calls Universal and says, listen, we found uh, somebody's trying to sell a 70 millimeter print of the Blues Brothers. Now, there was only one made. <laughs> that was the one we did the preview. And it turned out that the manager took it home. Meanwhile, the manager passed away and his son was clearing out his garage found this in the Goldberg cans, a 70 millimeter print of the Blues Brothers and put it on, it wasn't eBay, but put it on something like that. And the FBI spotted it, you know, right away and said, hello. So Universal said, no, that's ours. So they got it back and we screened it. They called me and said, what is this? And I said, that's gotta be the Pickwick print, you know? So we watched it and we realized it's 15 minutes. It has 15 minutes that were not in the release. Now, I, I, oh, what I didn't tell you was in 1985, I get a call from uh, Universal Home Video. And they there's this thing that they do in marketing and home video, which is the director's cut, you know, and stuff. The real reason they do it is to sell you the same movie again. So they said, do you want to do a director's cut of the Blues Brothers? And I said, I sure do. I've got all the, I mean, everything's just ready. We all, we have to is drop it in. Well, guess what? In 19, like 84 or something, I don't know what, Universal in its wisdom threw out all the outs and trims, everything, junked everything. And this wasn't unfinished. This was finished shit. So anyway, so when this print showed up, the print was in excellent condition. It wasn't scratched or anything. So if you watch the, are you are you looking at the Blu-ray or the the? Oh, you haven't seen the new 4K because I don't think right. Well, it's so much better. It's kind of amazing. But in any case. When it cuts to, so we dropped in those little pieces all through the movie. Sometimes I think, because they're dupes, they're dupes of an answer print. So sometimes I think you can tell that it's not the same negative, you know. But I think for most people, it just plays, you know, because the sound, you know, we had the tracks, no problem. So... In any case, that's, you know, there's, and it's surprising stuff. We could, like, for instance, you remember when they run out of gas at the gas station? So they're waiting for the gas truck to come. And the gas truck comes, 
the, he plugs, you know, the, 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 the car is filling with gas, but they're not paying attention. So you see how the gas is spilling out of the car all over the place. And Danny says, you know, come on, let's go, you know. And that's how it is in the movie, in the, in the, in the movie that came out and everyone has seen. Well, we blew, we built that gas station and, and then we blew it up. In fact, in the 15 minutes, you know, putting back in, John tosses his cigarette out the window and it's a huge fucking explosion that Jake and Elwood don't notice. Now, why did we cut that out? I think someone must have said, I don't know why, actually. I'm so curious about what else was in there that we can't see today. In the version with the 15 minutes, the church, James Brown's number is longer. John Lee Hooker's number is longer. And what I like very much is when John and Pine Top Perkins get into the argument at the end about who wrote the song. That That's not in the movie that everyone saw, but it's what we, we are able to save that, you know, there, um, gosh, there's a lot of stuff that's longer and also, there's gags that tiny moments. There's a thing that I thought was funny, but you know, to, to distill the movie down, you know, at the end when Jake and Elwood are in an elevator, and the entire might of the state, the military, is coming down. You know, all these men and machinery are coming down on Jake and Elwood, and you cut to them, and they're just in an elevator listening to a music girl from Ipanema, you know, and there's just a little moment when is it J- Elwood is snappy, you know, doing this thing with his oh, fingers. Right. And, and John tries to do it. Elwood shows him how to do it. Then he can do it. And it's just a little Laurel and Hardy moment that was cut out of the movie. You know, I, you know, and I think it's really funny. So I don't know. I, I can't explain any of this because it's so long ago and God knows what our reasoning was. But There's one scene in one version of the script that I read where they basically pull out of the prison at the beginning and pull pretty much right into a whorehouse. Yeah, I never shot that. Yeah, Danny loved that. I didn't like it. It had a joke. With The whole joke was that you know, Jake goes in with the prostitute, the door closes, and, you know, less than 10 seconds later, he comes out, okay, let's go. And I thought, you know, to set that up is seven minutes, and then that's the joke. I don't, I didn't, I never shot it. In fact, there's a lot of stuff in the script I, I just didn't shoot. And then there's a lot of stuff in the movie we just made up. Yeah, the end of the film, like, I think the the, the last maybe 20 minutes seemed to be covered in like three pages of the screenplay I read. I was just like, wow, you guys really expanded that out. I mean, especially with all the SWAT guys and just all of that insanity. Don't ask me to explain any of it. I really think I was 20. Well, how old? I was 28. <laughs> you know, Give me a break. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, and also, you know, that everyone, talks about the drug use on the movie and stuff. Well, truly, John's drug use got very bad, and it was scary and dangerous, and it did cause problems. But mostly because uh, we all love John, and it was heartbreaking. And candidly, he's not his best in the movie. He's got some great moments, but a lot of it, you know, I'm unhappy with a lot of his performance because, you know, 
If you look at him in Animal House, he's he's right there all the time. Sometimes I thought, gee, I'm glad for those dark glasses. But John, you know, I loved him. He's a wonderfully sweet guy. And uh, it was heartbreaking, that shit. How long after the Blues Brothers came out did you guys start talking about doing a sequel? The studio wanted to do a sequel because the movie made money. But the sequel came about because Danny really wanted to, you know, his, he, remember I told you he's evangelical about this. Well, so many of the great blues artists were dying and Danny calls me, says, we've got to put these people on film. (laughs) You know, we have to document these great, you know, so he wrote a script and, and I got with him and we rewrote it and we made a script. And actually I got enthusiastic because the script was quite good. And the studio really was dragging its feet. There were three different regime changes, not ownership, but, you know, new heads of production. And and finally, the one who greenlit the movie uh, left. <laughs> and the woman who replaced him didn't want to make the movie. So she said, uh, you know, this movie, people don't know, who, you have to put a child in it. And we went, what? You have to have a child in it. And so, okay, well, you know, because Danny's adamant we're making this movie. So we rewrite it, put a child in it. And then she says, well, you know what? Maybe you should have a black blues. You know, I think there were 15 drafts and everything really bent or wild or really out there kept getting hammered down. And it was very clear to us that if we caused too much argument, they just shut it down. So the idea was, you know, we just have to do everything they want and then we'll get it made. And it's interesting because by the time we were finished, I mean, this was like a year. And by the time we were finished, the character that John Goodman played was no longer a character. I said, Danny, he stands. Who is this guy? He stands there. It's like, what the fuck? And it was it was a strange, you know, it was made for very little money. We had to shoot in Toronto to save money. It was interesting because it is astonishing who was in that movie. And ironically, so many of them have passed away. I mean, Wilson Pickett, you know, it's got, it's got, you know, Coco Taylor, it's got B.B. King, you know, it's got... Every, everybody, I mean, fucking everybody, Lou Rawls, I mean, everybody's in that movie. And it was a very difficult movie for me because the script had been decimated and the t- on the set, whenever I would do something that wasn't like letter to the approved material, they would object. And it was, it was not... It was a difficult shoot for me. The musicians had a wonderful time. (laughs) And there are moments in it I'm quite proud of. I mean, the biggest difference between the first one and this one is the first one, the technology at the time, most of the musical numbers were to playback, which is the traditional way it's done. We would record stuff the night before and then shoot it. Um, only James Brown and John Lee Hooker are live in the first Blues Brothers. In the second Blues Brothers, only Aretha Franklin isn't live. <laughs> uh, 
everybody else. That's it was like because of you know the digital revolution, we had one truck out there, and boy, we I mean, it's astonishing what we recorded. It's you know Erica Badu. I mean, all that stuff is live, um, and it it was. It's interesting. On the sequel, I'm very proud of the music. There is astonishing music in it. And in fact, I tell people, buy the soundtrack. Because it's truly a great record. <laughs> and you can watch the movie on TV one day. Don't worry about the movie. <laughs> buy the soundtrack. But it was so, you know, I love Dan Aykroyd. And it was so important to Danny. You know, is it the movie I would like to have made? No, but... It has fabulous music and made under, you, you wouldn't believe it, but made under crazy circumstances like that, you know, the, the Battle of the Bands. Well, we were only able to get everybody <laughs> for one day because summer is when they all tour. So, and, you know, they all had to be in Toronto on the same day. And so, I mean, like we lost couple of people we had to change the date once so we lost uh, the rolling stones and we lost who else i mean some big people we lost because we had to change the date and they had concerts to do but still we have charlie musclewhite and you know to see travis tritt and eric clapton you know standing with uh bb king and joshua redman it's, it's an astonishing group of people I mean, have Dr. John and Billy Preston, and I mean, it's Stevie Winwood. <laughs> you know, it's like who's in the band? Well, you know, it's just everybody. Well, that was the thing Danny used to say in the first one. We had Aretha Franklin, James Brown, Cab Calloway, John Lee Hooker, and oh, Ray Charles. And who's in the second one? Everyone else. <laughs> But we tried, you know, and they, that scene, for instance, if you ever look that whole concert, it was so crazy because we only had everyone one day. Well, you know, half those people don't read music. So it's like, well, how are we going to learn the song? <laughs> you know, how are we going to jam? And, you know, Paul Schaefer, if you watch it, you see him like running around stage and stuff. He's literally leading, <laughs> running around. We shot the rehearsal of one thing, and and then because we were in Toronto and so many movies were shooting that summer, that I needed extra cameramen because normally we just carry two cameras. Well, in the concert, I wanted six because it's live, and you know. And the problem was, I got the worst camera operator because you get the dregs of the dregs, and it was heartbreaking what we didn't have. You that they fucked up, you know. It was really like, ah. But we did get some wonderful stuff, and what I thought was so funny is the the everyone who was there was so excited to be there, and I mean they were so excited. The musicians themselves, and you see, they were all running around taking pictures of one another, and it was it was funny. I mean they really, you know, Doctor John. Who's so? I mean, his recording we did that night. We did of season of the witch. Did you have you heard that? Oh yeah, that was amazing. It's amazing, you know. 
And we, we rehearsed it while we were to go to a recording studio and we rehearsed it once and then did it. And, and most of it is the Blues Brothers band, you know, and they are superb musicians. And, uh, it was, you know, it was, I love, and also Junior Wells in that canary yellow suit. You know, I don't know if you ever saw the movie, but we, he sings a number and, and we, we, there was nowhere to put it. So I just said, well, I'm putting it at the end. I put it at the end of the end credit. So I don't know if anybody saw it, but at least I got it, you know. And so it was, you know, it was wonderful. I mean, I mean, it was just it's just such remarkable people. And BB King has been giving me or gave me shit for years that he wasn't in the first one. You know, he would say to me, you know, because there's the mural we had outside the pawn shop, and he said, "I'm on the goddamn wall, but I'm not in the goddamn movie." <laughs> He was a wonderful person, BB. Really lovely man, and a road crap. I mean, he was he would tour like you know two hundred thirty five days a year or something. He was it was like crazy his schedule, and he always put on a great show. I worked with BB a lot, you know. I I mean, did you ever see Into the Night? Yeah, you made that documentary about him. Oh, that's right. Well, he did. You know, it was the first time it was done. It's been done since. But he sat with headphones and and Lucille, his guitar, and watched Into the Night like three times. And then the fourth time, he played along with the movie. And then uh, Ira Newborn wrote a score around BB's guitar. And since then, Ry Cooter and Eric Clapton have both done that. But, um, you know, it was it was like... I really loved BB. He was a really sweet man. He was like an African king. He was the Lion King. He had, I don't know, 45 grandchildren, something like that. Well, some legitimate, some not legitimate, but, you know, and he said, I got to work. I promised to put them all through college. I've got to work. And, you know, he, he was he was a lovely guy. Um, and Cab Calloway, I was so happy to work with Cab Calloway. <laughs> Of all the the actors uh, or musicians as actors, he is so great in that. He had quite an acting career. Have you have you ever seen? Um, oh, you know the the movie with Steve McQueen, Edward G. Robinson. Oh, the Cincinnati Kid. You ever seen it? Oh yeah. Well, Cab's one of the big time players. Yeah, he's I mean, he's he's in a lot of movies, and you know, in um, Porgy and Beth. The role, the role of uh, what's his name? Shit, the guy who sings it ain't necessarily. Oh, Sporting Life. It was written for Cab Calloway, and then he couldn't do it because of a movie commitment. But he did do it in a famous revival of the show years later, but on Broadway. But you know, I mean, Cab Calloway. I mean, and he. I wanted Cab Calloway, and so I flew to, he was performing in Dallas, Texas, and I flew to see him, talk to him, and he was very professional and reserved, and we talked, and he agreed to be in the movie. So then we're in Chicago, we've been shooting like a month, and the old Universal, not connected with Universal Studios, but Universal Recording, where Chess Records did all their cutting it's a shitty little place but that's where we cut all the music in chicago 
And Cab came. We were all excited. And we laid down the tracks. So all he had to do was come in and lay down the vocal of Minnie the Moocher. So I found his original arrangement from 19, whatever it was. And that's what we recorded. You know, with the Lou Marine, the great horns and stuff. We recorded it. Then (laughs) he comes in. Hello, hello, hello. And he says, okay, where are the charts? So we give him the charts, you know, and he looks at them and he says, what the fuck is this? And I said, it's uh, Minnie the Moocher. And he said, I know it's Minnie the Moocher. And he said, but what's this? I mean, this arrangement. And I said, Cab, that's, that's your original arrangement. He said, well, I thought we would do Well, here's what happened. Cab had re-recorded Minnie the Moocher since the 30s. He did, a, you know, of every major dance craze. So he did a rumba mini. He did a cha-cha mini. He even did a twist mini. He did all this stuff. And then he had just recorded a disco version of mini. And he thought he was going to sing that. And I said, oh, no, Cab, I, I want you to do this. And he said, but that's so old-fashioned. And I said, Cab, you know, I... Beg to differ. That's, you know, that's what I want. And And he got very angry because he thought he would be selling his records and everybody was like, "Uh uh-oh. And he goes in the booth and we're about to do playback. And he does his first take. And at the end of it, he goes, how is that? (laughs) Really hostile. And I said, Cab, it wasn't very good. And he said, what do you mean it wasn't very good? And I said, well, Cab, you are Cab Calloway. And from Cab Calloway, I expect it to be brilliant. I expect it to be great. And he goes, looks at me, and everyone in the room is hiding, you know. And Steve Crop going, oh, you know. And I said, he looked at me and he goes, well, Mr. Landis, you didn't tell me you wanted it fucking great. <laughs> so I said, well, Cab, I, I want it great. I will do it again. Okay. Playback. And he does the one that's in the movie in one take. Brilliant. And at the end of it, even before we turn, you know, off, he tore off his headset and he went, how is that? And I said, Cab, that was great. So all you got to do is fucking tell me. And he storms out. And we thought, uh-oh. And he was, you know, he wasn't meant to be back for like two weeks. And we're going, should I call him? Shouldn't I call him? What should I do? You know? And I, and Duck Dunn said, no, nah, don't call him. He's fine. He's fine. And in fact, amazingly enough, um, when he came back, he was a joy. He was so wonderful. And he loved the movie, and he loved working on the movie, and he was so nice and so funny. And, you know, it's like that never happened. <laughs> but, man, it was very scary at first. <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. I have to go. But if you want to call me back, you can another time. Oh, that would be great. This has been terrific. Uh, again, I can't thank you enough. This has been great.
January 6th from Universal Pictures, the blues are back. I'm getting the band back together. The last time they played anywhere, they were charged with grand larceny, felonious motor vehicle assault, and damages in excess of $20 million. And you are asking me if I want to join this band? I could show you all the moves. My God! This is Mighty Mac, the new lead singer in the band. I said, hey, 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 come on, with me. Stop the music. Dan Aykroyd, John Goodman, Joe Morton, James Brown, Aretha Franklin, B.B. King, Paul Shaver, Erica Badu, Travis Tritt, Bo Diddley, Dr. John, Steve Winwood, Wilson Pickett, Blues Traveler, Johnny Lamb, and many more. The Blues Brothers Band? I thought you guys were all in jail. Dan Aykroyd and John Landis, directed by John Landis. All right, we are back, and we are talking about the Blues Brothers. And I mentioned the cartoon version of the Blues Brothers earlier, and that never really happened. I was glad to see that there's an article out on the uh, Lost Media Wiki talking about it, and there's even a couple scripts for it floating around and some animatics. Meet Jake and Elwood. Oh, mama! Two guys who belong in a cell. All he did was compliment his sister's skirt. Yeah, but you did it from the inside. Try to be nice. Animation cell, that is. Punch it! They've been on every television network's most wanted list for years. Jake, Peacock, dead ahead. Not yet. But these boys are smarter than any fox. And they don't wait for frogs either. Goodbye, my honey. Goodbye, my toad kill. Elwood, how do we kill CBS? Just let them keep running their primetime schedule. Hey, signing these guys to a deal isn't as easy as ABC. Finally got that rat. I'm proud of you. But at UPN, we took one look at their blues cruiser, and we knew just what to do. We gave them their space. Jake, we're home. And this fall, we're proud to announce that the Blues Brothers are parking it right here on America's most watched new network. Absolutely. We talked about that TV version, and I'm pretty sure that Jim Belushi did the swear word replacement on the TV version. It sounds like him. And I say that because Jim and John, they are similar sometimes, but Jim Belushi has a completely different voice from John Belushi. So when he tries to do his brother's voice, it just does not work. And so apparently this was Jim Belushi as Jake in the cartoon and Peter Aykroyd being Elwood. And then of course, Mark Hamill was going to show up to do some voices. I mean, the voice talent on the show was just incredible. Even uh, Tim Curry showed up to do a voice in one of the episodes. But unfortunately, we'll never see that. That was supposed to be 97. And what we ended up getting was Blues Brothers 2000 in 1998. 
they were going to do a McKenzie Brothers animation and they were going to do a Dumb and Dumber. I mean, they were, I don't know what they were thinking back then. Like, they just, I don't know. It, you know, I guess the Simpsons were big and they just lost their minds. There have been so many strange animations of things that shouldn't be animated kid shows like Beetlejuice and Rambo. <laughs> you know, it's like, what are you Where's doing? Where's Waldo? Remember what? Remember watching that when I was a kid? The story would be going on, and then they'd all the characters were like, "Hey, where's Waldo?" And the and the, it would freeze frame for like a minute, so you'd have to stare at the screen. I've walked out of a lot of movies, but I usually walk out of movies when I'm at a film festival because there's usually a better movie that is happening somewhere in a theater nearby or a theater across town. Blues Brothers 2000. Did I pay for that one? I think I got a pass to go see it, and. I made it up to the Aretha Franklin part before I left. So I had never actually seen all of Blues Brothers 2000 until this weekend. I posted on Facebook, it's just like the things that I do for you people, because it was so painful to watch. Uh, I saw this one in the theater. I didn't see the first one in the theater, but I saw Blues Brothers 2000 on the big screen on opening day when I was the, by myself to make it even more depressing. I was alone. There was no one else with me. I'm just in a theater watching this thing. Yeah, I love 1941, but I'm not sticking up for Blues Brothers 2000. <laughs> Mike's like, thank God. No, dude. Like, so I was young enough to be, let's see, I was okay. I would have been 17, I think, when Blues Brothers 2000 came out. So naive enough to think, like, I love the first one. The first one's a classic. Surely this one will be good. And Dan Aykroyd was everywhere promoting it. I remember my dad being much wiser than me. My dad going, yeah, I don't know if that's going to be any good, man. And me going, no, it has to be. And then going to the movie theater to see it again by myself after school on a Friday and just the realization of, well, no, it, it was the real is the final realization that no, this is bad and it's not coming back from this eventually happened. But there was the moment like you're watching the first five, 10 minutes or so where there's still that part of your head that'll be like, well, maybe it'll get better. Maybe it'll get better. That scene didn't work, but oh, maybe it'll pick up from there. It, it might have been around the ghosts showing up in the sky where I was like, hey, there's there's not any coming back from this. And I just started getting progressively more mad. And then with the voodoo stuff and the zombies, my mom picks me up in the car afterwards. God, I was livid. Just like <laughs> describing all this, all of this to my mom who was in disbelief. I had not watched it and I dutifully watched it for the projection booth like a few days ago for the first time. And it was so bad that I didn't, I just couldn't even remember it, you know, even just though it had just been a few days ago. So I today watched it at double speed. <laughs> I needed to refresh my, I was like, I don't even remember what happened in this movie. And, um, it, you know, double speed, it's, you know, what the heck, right? But, um, no, it's, it is, it's, it's really sad because I could see you walking into this movie thinking, how could they mess it up? so badly. I actually thought for sure it won't be as bad as I've heard it is. You know, how could it be? I mean, it's music. It's great music. It's a basic uh, they're going to just go with that simple story again. Car chases, great R&B music. You know, there's just so much room for okayness. <laughs> and yet, <laughs> weirdly, the musical numbers 
you know, like that that one where the the revivalists were just this white tent. It's like they ran out of money at that point, and it's just so sad looking. Ugh. Dan Aykroyd's strength isn't sequel writing because I I do like Ghostbusters too, but they have very similar faults. The two movies do, which is both of them try redoing the things from the first movie, and both of them are very family friendly toned down to with the baby in Ghostbusters 2 and the kid in Blues Brothers 2000 and whereas we're talking about all that cinematography and everything in the Blues Brothers like at one point looking like a horror movie and then all the stuff with the car chases Blues Brothers 2000 it looks like you're kind of like a standard SNL type movie of the late 90s just like Ghostbusters has parts where it looks like a horror movie. Ghostbusters 2 through and through just looks like, you know, a, a zany comedy, really. But Blues Brothers 2000 did make me way more mad. Blues Brothers 2000, it's so flat. Like, the lighting is so flat. Like, you, we mentioned the strip club that's in Blues Brothers 2000. Everything is just, like, lit from above. It looks like, you know, like when you go into a movie theater and it's got the, you know, kind of an ambiance to it, like when you're in there. But then, I don't know if you all have ever been in there when they turn the cleaning lights on, which are these, like, high-powered overhead lights, right? So that you can see all the gunk in between the the seats and everything. That's how the movie looks like it was lit, with, like, the cleaning lights on. Because it was just like, there's nothing here. There's no ambiance in the strip club. There's no ambiance any place. And it was just like, what are we doing here? Like you said, it does look like an SNL movie from the late eighties or late nineties, where it was just like, this is completely flat. Like the, the compare the, the penguins office and how it looks so cryptic and just all of this stuff on the walls and stuff in the original. And now she's been promoted and she's just in this like flat looking office. I mean, I know I keep using the word flat, but that's how everything feels to me. Oh dude, you're totally right. And right now, like the effects too, cause the effects in the, in the, in the 1981, dear God, do they still hold up? N- nah, dude. In Blues Brothers 2000, when Joe Morton floats up into the sky and like, oh, whoa, God. like, it, like slow down Mortal Kombat Annihilation. <laughs> The art direction is just terrible. Everything just, you know, there's no thought put into it. I mean, you, you think of in the Blues Brothers, the, the original going up those stairs, just up those stairs to see Stigmata. That is just like art. You know, it's just gorgeous. It's just, it's just like they would never, you just know the people involved with this other movie would never have been able to even with even a bigger budget really been able to be that creative with it. Um, you know, you have to wonder, of course, like how much rewriting we don't know about, you know, whenever these movies come out, who doctors these movies, you know, maybe there was that kind of thing going on. But yeah, to think that it was, it was Dan Aykroyd and John Landis writing this thing and then Landis directing it, you know, it's so puzzling. It's just so puzzling. And, and then, you know, again, the music, you know, the last thing you want to hear Aretha Franklin do is respect. Come on. You couldn't come up with anything else for her to sing. You know, it's fine to have her back, but I mean, it was the most, you know, all of the music is kind of, uh, uh well, some of the music is a, is a bit eye rolling. Joe Morton actually does a great job, uh, singing, but I mean, in the beginning, you have Dan Aykroyd and, um, John Goodman in front of Junior fucking Wells and Lonnie Brooks, you know, who are these just amazingly talented people and they're just in the background and, and, and we have, you know, John Goodman cutting up 
on stage, you don't even see them performing till the end credits. It's really heartbreaking. It's it's also I think there's a little bit of a you can feel a self indulgent vibe a little more with maybe Dan Aykroyd's choices. I don't know. Yeah, I was very concerned about that because I, I like I had read that Landis and Aykroyd weren't happy with things, and then I read the screenplay and I was just like, okay, this screenplay dated a year before this movie came out, probably a year before it was even shot. I was just like, this is exactly that. But from what Landis says, there was a ton of studio involvement and all these regime changes that happened. And so the idea of putting Buster, the kid in there, he says was put in there by Universal. And I'm just like, okay, I believe you, but at the same time, I swear I saw Macaulay Culkin wearing the Blues Brothers outfit in a photo shoot someplace well before this movie came out. And it just feels like there were so many bad ideas percolating in Dan Aykroyd's mind over the years. It's like, he's just been so desperate to, and and I understand this is a very dear property to him. This is something that, you know, was, like I said, like he and Belushi treated each other like brothers. And after Belushi's gone, he must have gone through a horrible time, but he keeps doing the Elwood thing. And then I know he's brought in Jim Belushi at one point to kind of fill that role, brought in John Goodman at one point to kind of fill that role. And it's just like, okay, but it doesn't really click. Like, I think the third Blues Brothers for, for a little while, or sorry, the other Blues Brother wasn't going to be Joe Morton. It was going to be Jim Belushi. And then he had a conflict. It was either that or the third one would be John Goodman and Jim Belushi would be the Mac character. But I'm pretty sure that Jim was supposed to play the half brother. And then that didn't work out or the studio said, no, put a black guy in there. And yeah, thank goodness it's Joe Morton because he can, you know, act circles around pretty much anybody. And he does. And he, yeah, he's got great pipes, which is yeah. fantastic. He really can. I mean, he was, I was amazed because I didn't know him as a singer. He was fantastic, really. The only way I can think of someone like sort of ironically enjoying it is so when I watched the first movie with my wife the other day, and again, she'd never seen the first movie before and, and she liked it just fine. And then she watched some, some clips of, uh, the second movie. And she said to me, she goes, she goes, yeah, this movie's, you, you can tell right away this movie's not as good. Uh, she goes, she goes, since I don't have the history of the first movie or anything like that, and I just saw it, she goes, I, yeah, I, I know I wouldn't think that this is on par with or better than the first one, but she goes, I feel like I'd sort of ironically enjoy this the same way I would Weekend at Bernie's 2. <laughs> And I go, well, you put it like that. I'm like, yeah, I guess you could, like, if you didn't come up with the, if you just saw the first movie and you watch this, it's like, sure, in like, you know, you have some drinks or watching a bad movie kind of way, like Weekend at Bernie's 2. I'm like, hey, I understand that. They both have silly voodoo stuff in it, (laughs) turning into zombies and shit. Well, there are kids that grew up with The Phantom Menace being the only Star Wars movie that they saw, so they love the prequels. And it's like... Okay, I can't see that, but yeah, I'm sure that there are kids that grew up with Blues Brothers 2000 that are just like, yeah, this is fantastic. I love this. More power to them. But for somebody that, like us, the three of us who grew up with the original and were watching it all the time to see like 
this weird carbon copyish type of thing where it's, you know, the, we replace rednecks and cops with Russian mobsters. We have, well, actually, we still have rednecks, but now they're also white supremacists in this and talking about the Jewish communist conspiracy. And it's just like, okay, and which, which is a little like, you know, if they remade this today, would they all be like QAnon type people? I mean, it, it's a little too close to home sometimes. Yeah, man, there was a brief point after I saw this movie where I was terrified I was going to be like the odd man out because again like I was the only one there I saw it I'm like I don't like this and I'm like ranting to my mom about it afterwards and then whereas I was at some it might have been at school like the cafeteria or something like that or maybe somewhere else but there was a couple of guys sitting there who also saw it and were like what you didn't like it what the hell that movie was amazing and I hadn't really heard or seen anyone else who had seen the movie so I'm like oh, crap is this going to be one of those instances where I'm like the odd man out and everyone loves the movie thank god that was not the case <laughs> <laughs> One thing we're kind of implying here is that John Belushi had a lot more to do with the wit and the style and the purity of the first movie. And I think there's evidence of that, too, in that suddenly Johnny Lang, who is that guy, that that really young blonde guy who sings the blues? And then the blues travelers are in it. You know, they had not wanted to do that. I know, you know, uh, John Belushi did not want he just wanted the legends, period. He did not want the younger generation, you know, really, except for the Blues Brothers band itself. But he did, you know, and they weren't young, but, you know, he wanted it to be pure. And um, clearly, that didn't happen. Also, I just to me, they kind of really, you know, I'm nothing against the Blues Travelers, but it just, to me, kind of sullies the movie. Um, and Johnny Lang is like painful, I think. That was painful. And yeah, every time that Buster would play his harmonica, I was like, I'm pretty sure John Popper played this. He did. Yeah, he did. He did. Yeah, it says it in the credits, yeah. Popper's got a very distinct harmonica sound, and I absolutely hate it. Oh, my freaking ears! And it's so random, the Popper scene, too, because it's like, they're they're gone from the scene, uh, the, the Blues Brothers are. And it's just, we're staying on this act that's just kind of still going on. <laughs> like, they didn't hear anyone yell cut, and it still keeps going. I'm guessing it's kind of like the Twiggy scene, like this is after everybody else left. I don't even know. It's a, like I said, it's a weird, such a strange movie. I will, what I will give it is that at the end when the Louisiana Gator Boys are up on stage and I'm just like, holy shit, to see that much talent on one stage was really phenomenal. That was all I could say for the movie. There are some musical moments. I think the the phone number, the the you know six three four uh, five seven eight nine. That's a fun number. It's again the set is kind of blah, but it's you know well done and it's you know it's a, it's a it's a nice again except for Johnny Lang's little cameo there, but it's otherwise it's clearly um, you know Eddie Floyd and Wilson Pickett they're amazing and and it's a great song. So the, the songs at the end, I even like that sort of Caribbean song they do. I think is a is a nice song in itself, um, even though it's kind of silly looking, but. You know, it just isn't enough. It's too late. It's too late. You know, we're already like, we're already, our hearts are already broken by that point. I know, like the, the little, the little flat Blues Brothers flag that I would have up, like in my hand, is at that point already just like cartoon lowered. Like, pew. there was one moment where I was watching the movie, and I'm just like, why are they even? in this battle of the bands. Like, I couldn't remember what the the push of the movie was. Like, in the first one, we're like, okay, yeah, 5000 bucks for the orphanage. Okay, cool. We're on a mission from God. All right, I got it. I'm gone. In this one, I'm just like, 
why are they doing this again? I don't even understand. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't I don't remember either. And I watched it twice. And it also like negates the first one too, because when they go to the penguin at the beginning of it, she's like, Oh yeah, the orphanage closed down. Like, oh, okay. Well, fine. Fuck those kids. I guess it wouldn't have mattered if they gave Spielberg the money at the end of the first movie. And I guess Jake might have been in a different prison from Elwood because he doesn't know that Jake died. I didn't get that one either. When I first saw it, I took that as Jake was released from prison first. I guess maybe since since Elwood was the one doing all the driving in the first movie, I think at the time I probably thought like, okay, I guess maybe Elwood's prison sentence was longer. I mean, I, I could be right. If, if they probably weren't even thinking about that when they wrote the script. Like. Yeah, they're just like, we have to come up with an explanation why Jake's dead. And we have to make it a little poignant. You know, like him standing there, it is sad. You know, it is sad. Yeah. It is. And that's why, you know, Brad, you were saying in the first five minutes, you're like, okay, yeah. But then after that, it just falls apart. What a sad day that was in theaters. I still remember it. It was 22 years ago. I just wanted to take like a silkwood shower after I walked out of it. I was like, please just get this out of my brain. Yeah. The things we do for podcasts, you know? Anything else we want to talk about the Blues Brothers? As far as its place in musicals, film musicals history, I don't know how to describe why it's so unique and fresh and different from anything that came before it, but I think it really is. Like, I think it's legitimately something significant that I maybe can't put into words, but there's something different about it that broke new ground as far as musical film and, and just the wittiness of even the musical numbers and uh, the consistency of it. I don't know. There's, there's something very, um, fresh about it that nobody had done before. And again, I just don't even know how to put it into words, but I appreciate it enormously. And that it stands out from that era of musicals as well. Like, I, I love that era of late 70s, early 80s musicals, even the, even a lot of the ones that do, that don't get very good reviews just because of the insanity of some of them, like Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band or The Apple or movies like that, where it's like, okay, I can, I'm getting a contact high just watching this. Bugsy Malone. Yes. Oh my God. Oh, so good. Yeah. Like, so I just, I love that era of musical anyway, just for the sheer hubris on screen. Blues Brothers really stands out from that. Cause yeah, Again, you see the spectacle and the money on screen and everything like that. So it does have, it does certainly have all that with the scope and everything, but just makes it so great even beyond that from the one-liners, the comedy, the chemistry, the musical performances, just the standout quotes and lines that they give to, to everyone from people who have large amounts of screen time to people that are only in the movie for 10 seconds. It's just, so many great things all coming together to make this really perfect musical comedy. And I will say, if people haven't heard Briefcase Full of Blues, the Blues Brothers soundtrack, Made in, what is it, Made in America, right, was the third album. I mean, I used to listen to those things on repeat when I was, uh, you know, in my folks' car and then even my in my own car when I finally was able to drive. 
great, great albums. There's also The Best of the Blues Brothers, which was released, I think, in 94, which is just all performances of theirs. There's also The Blues Brothers Live at Winterland, which is them opening for the Grateful Dead. I think it was the last night of Winterland before they knocked it down, I guess. At least that's what it sounds like from the beginning of the, the DVD. So those are out there as well. Also really worthwhile checking out because you get to see just some really great performances. And again, you know, the energy that they had on stage, their showmanship, the showmanship of the band, it was top notch. And, you know, they, they luckily they captured it with the first Blues Brothers movie. But if you want more of that, they have other avenues that you can go down and see more of that performance energy that they had. So highly, highly recommend it. All right, let's go ahead and take another break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. What do they call it anyway? Karateogi? It's karaoke. Baby, let's No way from the Hollywood Pictures invites you. Hi. Hi. You're going to fly away to escape your problems and just do it. That's right. We'll be back next week to close out Musical Month with a look at duets. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Susan and Brad. So, Brad, what has been keeping you busy lately, sir? I've been going at a really good pace here lately because we were originally going to uh, go to my uh, in-laws for the holidays. That got canceled because we were like, let's not go on a train. So now I've, I, I didn't have to do a bunch of work in advance. So now I can kind of like chill for the holidays and kind of work at a good pace. But I'll be looking at things coming up on the show for uh, like The Shining. I'm going to look at Zardoz and Thief in the Night and a lot of kind of random stuff I got coming up. One of my favorite uh, apocalypse films. I know, dude. I'm looking forward to seeing that one again. I hadn't seen that since high school. So I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to revisiting this. And a line that I never understood from uh, James Brown in The Blues Brothers, that it comes like a thief in the night. I had no idea what he was saying until I finally watched The Blues Brothers with closed captions on. And Susan, what's new in your world? I'm wrapping up. I only have uh, three more episodes as of this recording of Rosemary's Baby 666, which I've been dragging along like a dead corpse across the finish line. Then in the new year... 2021. I'm going to be launching a new podcast. Um, actually, my friend Joe Dater, New Yorker cartoonist Joe Dater, who's on my podcasts a lot and who lent me this wonderful book. Um, he's going to be co-hosting with me and we're going to, I think we're calling it the comedy film funnel. And it'll be every episode we look at a different comedy film, which, you know, I know you have a lot of movie podcasts out there to listen to, but, you know, we have our own unique take. And um, he's incredibly funny and really knows this stuff. And I love doing this, doing the research, and, and uh, it should be fun. Brian, if you like The Shining, uh, Susan did a podcast called Shining 237, where she went through – Two minutes and 37 seconds of The Shining each week. For how many weeks did she do it that? Was like 53 episodes. And I had Danny, I had Danny on. I had Stanley's daughter on. I had, it was great. It was really fun. So yeah. I'm writing that down right now. That's totally up my alley. Like I'm absolutely going to listen to that. Well, Susan dug up all this stuff that I had never heard of before. Like you went to all those paints to find what some of the albums are that yeah. were in. Um, we had exclusive. Yeah, I, I came up with some exclusive discoveries about the movie. So it was it was really really fun. 
Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
improviso ti vedrò sorrintendecandome si vuoi dirmi di sì direi dirlo perché non ha senso per me la mia via senza te quando tu verrai, dimmi quando, 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 cacciando tu verrai, non te leggeremo mai. ship that ever sailed the seas on the decks were guns as big as steers and shells as big as trees out of the cold and foggy night came the british ship the hood and every british seaman he knew and understood they had to sink the bismarck the peril of the sea stop those guns as big as steers and those shells as big as trees hey find the german battleship was making such a fuss We gotta sink the Bismarck cause the world depends on us. Hey, hit the decks around, boys, and spin those guns around. When we find the Bismarck, we gotta cut her down. The hood found the Bismarck on that fatal day. The Bismarck started firing 50 miles away. We gotta sink the Bismarck was the battle sound. The smoke had cleared away, the mighty hood went down For six long days and weary nights, they tried to find her trail Churchill told the people, put every ship a sail Cause somewhere on that ocean, I know she's gotta be We gotta sink the Bismarck to the bottom of the sea Hey, find that German battleship that's making such a fuss We gotta sink the Bismarck cause the world depends on us Hit the decks to run, boys, and spin those guns around. And when we find the Bismarck, we gotta cut her down. The fog was gone the seventh day, and they saw the morning sun. Ten hours away from homeland, the Bismarck made it to run. The admiral of the British fleet said, turn those bows around. We found that German battleship, and we're gonna cut her down. The British guns were aimed and the shells were coming fast. The first shell hit the Bismarck, they knew she couldn't last. That mighty German battleship is just a memory. Sink the Bismarck was the battle cry that shook the seventh sea. We found that German battleship was making such a fuss. We had to sink the Bismarck cause the world depends on us. We hit the decks to run, boys, and spun those guns around. We found the mighty Bismarck and then we cut her down We found the German battleship was making such a fuss We had to sink the Bismarck cause the world depends on us We hit the decks to run and we spun those guns around We found the mighty Bismarck and then we cut her down I'll hit another hit of you. 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 I
again. Ball, ball, ball. Have you ever heard of a wish sandwich? A wish sandwich is the kind of a sandwich where you have two slices of bread and you <laughs> wish you had some meat. Ball, ball, ball. The other day I had a ricochet biscuit. A ricochet biscuit is the kind of a biscuit that's supposed to bounce back off the wall into your mouth. If it don't bounce back, <laughs> you go hungry. Bow, bow, bow. The other day, I had a cool water sandwich and a Sunday go to meat and bun. Bow, bow, bow. <laughs> what do you want for nothing? Rubber biscuit? Bow, bow. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.